I slumped against the wall, and the fabric of my shirt stuck. It was so stiffened it snapped. It ripped clean away when I got up. The door. I had to get to the door. That was when I saw... I was going to say when I saw them, but the plural doesn't really describe the circumstance. Not that there was only one, either. It is very hard to put into words. There was the door in front of me, and just enough starlight to shine a faint glint off the metal handle. I could not use my hands, so I leant on the handle with my elbow, but of course it did not give way. Locked, of course locked. And of course Roy would not be opening it for me this time. Then I saw... what I saw. Data experiences of a radically new kind. Raw tissues of flesh, darkness visible, a kind of fog. No, fog is the wrong word. A pillar of fire by night, except that it did not burn or gleam or shine. It is the wrong word for it. It felt or looked like a great tumbling of scree down an endless slope, or rubble gathering at the bottom and falling up the mountain. Forwards, backwards. It was the most terrifying thing I ever saw. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. Uh, if this is your first time joining us, welcome to the world's smallest book club, slightly bigger this week, month, episode. Not really sure of our units of measurement here. Um, this is actually a break in our usual program. Usually our gimmick is that we read books over 500 pages, just because, and then we talk about it, because, you know, it's like an accountability buddy thing to get through, for example, Charles Taylor. This time, we did a slightly smaller book, but <laughs> one which maybe has too much to talk about still, and in an effort to help us wrangle those ideas into a semi-reasonable length of podcast, we brought in uh, Martin Wendell Jones, a writer from Canada that we both know on Twitter, basically. He's written for Image Journal, Hedgehog, Plow, and I think years ago, not, not, not that many, he did a uh, basically a blockbuster piece on Jimmy and Tammy Faye Baker. Really good stuff. Um, a favorite Twitter follower, follow, and just an all-around smart dude. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Martin. Thank you both so much. Really excited to uh, be joining you to talk about this fascinating book. Yeah, so the book this time is The Thing Itself by Adam Roberts, um, a book we've all read, and so we've kind of reread it for this podcast. It's a book which can safely encompass discussion about the Will Smith movie Enemy of the State, and Kant's critique of pure reason. So it's going to be a bonkers podcast. <laughs> um, Adam Roberts, by the way, is a British science fiction writer, but he really is so much more than that. He's a 19th century lit scholar, I believe. He's a prolific blogger on multiple subjects. Um, he's a very funny Twitter presence and a general all-around old-fashioned almost renaissance man of ideas uh, he certainly has his pet projects most of them literary in some form he's associated with the hg wells society and i believe has written a biography on him but anything that he's interested in and writes about you too will gain an interest in he i think edited 
a steampunk a steampunk anthology. Um, he does it all. He really does. He does it casually. He does it academically, and he does it as in this book at the level of actual original creative writing. So he's amazing. We all kind of love him, and he's someone who, in any of his mediums media, is worth following. But this truly is a book where um, the philosophy is essential to the plot. And one of the things, Martin, we were hoping you could help us with is the philosophy of Kant. I think you have a bit of a background in phenomenology, I think you said. But um, yeah, I was kind of curious if you could you know, say hi, introduce yourself more if you want, and then also maybe talk to us about what we need to know for Kant to read this book. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I have a background in uh, philosophy, bachelor's and master's. Um, my second degree at the KU Leuven in Leuven, Belgium, where I study at the Husserl Archive and the Higher Institute of Philosophy and did two seminars on Kant. Um, you know, unarguably the most important modern thinker who really kind of uh, opens a door that can't be closed when it comes to the Enlightenment project. And the really cool thing about the thing itself, this novel by Adam Roberts, is his use of Kant's philosophy um, to basically serve as a kind of conceit that drives a lot of the plot and also opens up a lot of the sort of um, thematic uh, exploration and even the formal experimentation. Um, so very enjoyable how I think he ends up using this to structure the novel. And yeah, here's, you know, the old college try when it comes to um, explaining Kant's ideas. So um, Immanuel Kant, uh, 18th century thinker, German, um, you know, sort of quintessential enlightenment um, figure, and basically came of age in a time when the Enlightenment project had basically been going on for, you know, well over a century, um, debates over the nature of knowledge and reason and reality, sort of, you know, cutting away the roots and tradition that had anchored so much um, formal philosophical reflection throughout the Middle Ages and sort of, um, you know, starting with uh, figures like Francis Bacon and, um, after him, uh, figures like Locke and Descartes, you know, basically trying to find a new framework for knowledge that uh, was sort of uh, able to stand on its own feet. You know, Descartes famously, you know, rolling a ball of wax in his fingers while staying overnight in a hotel or an inn, excuse me, um, and wondering what this implied about the nature of reality and perception, um, applying any sort of, you know, procedural doubt to clarify his perceptions and arrive at, you know, clear ideas that could be a basis for his philosophy. So Kant comes in after these guys. The debates have been raging along the lines of, you know, the empiricists who think that um, all knowledge and all ideas are derived from experience, that we're, you know, famously tubula rasa. Um, when we're born, we have nothing written on our brains, and then we just, you know, start writing on that tablet. The book of experience it becomes open to us, and that's, you know, from which all of our ideas are derived. And then on the other side, you have the rationalists, folks like um, Spinoza and Leibniz, who, um, you know, essentially uh, foreground reason and the understanding and concepts as being innate and uh, being applied to sense perception. So what had been true of reason up until the time of Kant was that you could basically think your way up and down the uh, ladder of the great chain of being and a reason in a commensurate way between, you know, like the rocks, like on the pathway in front of you and metaphysical principles, you know, having to do with God and ultimate reality. And, um, you know, that was kind of like something that characterized, you know, the thought of folks like Leibniz and Spinoza and the great sort of systematic early modern thinkers is that 
You know, they essentially, you know, like their physics blended directly into their metaphysics. And a figure who comes along and kind of takes issue with this is the famous Scottish skeptic, David Hume. And he says, you know, he basically tries to pull at just one threat. Like, basically, the thing that these thinkers are all trying to preserve um, is certainty, on the rationalist side, at least. You know, they want to reason with apodictic certainty um, from premises to uh, true justified conclusions, and in that way, you know, arrive at knowledge that, you know, has a, has a degree of certainty that you just don't find when you're making simple, like, empirical judgments. And, um, you know, Hume comes along and he's like, you know what? Let's even just think about the, you know, the strongest example that people give of this principle. Um, causality. You know, we think of billiard balls, you know, like striking one another, cause and effect. We even think about the sun rising every day and, you know, being able to trust that that's going to happen. But really, like, we don't know, like, you know, say how big the set of phenomena ultimately is. Like how many days, you know, like the sun would behave in this manner. Um, these judgments are actually inductive. Like they don't convey certainty. We're not reasoning from these absolute sort of premises and foundations. We're really thinking like already in a situation where we, you know, basically just um, have probabilities and can't really say more than that. And what Hume threatens to do is to undermine with this, you know, skeptical feint, um, the entire project of enlightenment thinking, you know, like where's our certainty going to go at this point? Like, you know, like what do we make of this whole project of self-grounding human reason and the civilization that we're attempting to build on top of its foundation um, if we don't actually have deductive certainty in our judgments? And this famously Kant says, you know, it wakes him up from his dogmatic slumber. So that's our starting point with Kant is there's been this like skeptical move and no one's really quite sure how to answer Hume. And so Kant, you know, proposes to undertake, uh, you know, this critique. And when he says critique, he's not meaning, you know, um, just going in and criticizing and finding fault. He's actually talking about something more like a diagnostic. And so the critique of pure reason in particular, which is his greatest achievement, is an attempt to use reason to sound out the proper domain and limits of reason itself. And one of the things that he, you know, says early on is, you know, metaphysics has basically used pure reason as a way to judge truth claims, which is an inappropriate use of pure reason. What he's interested in with pure reason is the use of reason and the application of reason before any particular contents. So before we have things that we're actually judging between, before we're making, you know, evaluations of truth and falsehood, um, that's the domain within which pure reason is able to operate. He says it wouldn't actually make sense for us to think that we can, you know, make inferences about like truth and falsehood when we're in the domain of pure reason because it has nothing to operate on like when we think about judgments of like true and false especially and what is truth those all have to do with um propositions in the world that we find ourselves in and he says this is you know essentially an illegitimate use and this is why we get so dunderheaded about metaphysics so much of the time as we you know, we basically uh, mistake, you know, pure reason as a criterion for truth and then use it to justify these grand metaphysical systems. You know, as Shezla Miloš says in one of his poems, I tire easily building the stairway of abstraction. And that's, you know, basically kind of like the mood that Kant gets yeah. into. He's just like really frustrated with these, you know, like the man that he had followed for so long, Christian Wolff and Leibniz before him. Like there's a sort of grandeur to these um, early modern thinkers, but they're also, you know, they just end up hopelessly befuddled. Um, in, you know, like problems that are produced by this misapplication of reason. So he proposes to sort of like redraw the boundaries. And in so doing, he introduces, you know, the, the um, doctrine of the elements, which basically is a, 
divided between the transcendental logic, so the categories of the understanding are found here, and also the um, categories of pure intuition, which are space and time. So these, as I said before, you know, this is before any content is introduced into like the mind, before we have any particular intuitions. Kant says it's impossible for you to imagine, you know, there not being space or there not being time. These are fundamental elements of human experience. And then on the other side, if you want to understand something that's entered into, you know, your ken, floated over the transom, um, you know, through sensation, um, in order to render appearances to understand what you're seeing, you need the categories of the understanding. And these as well, he um, argues, are a priori. Like they, they, they exist before experience, they're conditions of the possibility of experience. So these essentially are structuring elements of the only world that we know, which is the human world. He says again and again, all that we can speak to, you know, is um, the experience and contents of the human mind. That's all that we have access to. We can't step outside of this subjective point of view that we have. And he's really not talking about any individual person. Um, he's talking about, you know, capital M mind, which is sort of, you know, a, a predominant interest in the period in which he's writing. So all of this to say in the critique of pure reason, Kant basically like redraws the boundaries for the appropriate use of reason. And that has to do with, um, you know, the sort of uh, experience of intuition, um, you know, basically having perceptions, uh, things appearing to us, you know, things that are given experience, and then the understanding that sort of meets with, you know, those objects that, you know, we perceive, which is dependent on the categories of the understanding. And again, Kant really wants to, again and again, affirm the importance of saying, like, we really are just like, only, we're sticking to what we can say about reason within the confines of reason, really trying to be careful about, you know, what we can actually um, justify within this context. And in this way, Kant is trying to save the whole project of modern thought. He's basically saying, like, if we just redraw the boundaries here, we can save ourselves from Hume's critique. And this is where he introduces, you know, this sort of famous distinction between phenomena and noumena. Phenomena, you know, it basically talks about pure intuition, space and time, and the categories of the understanding being applied to the empirical world. And he says that's essentially like the domain within which they're, you know, which, within which they have a valid application. And the really like the sort of the key moment that I think is sometimes lost in discussions of Kant is, is how he says, you know, the way that we sort of guarantee the application, the correct application of reason in the empirical world is through schematization. So there are categories of the understanding that had just been like sort of used quite freely in, you know, the work of earlier metaphysicians. And Kant says we have to take those and we basically have to um, sort of temper them with uh, pure intuition, space and time. And in that way, we produce a concept that you can actually apply to the natural sciences. So instead of something, you know, like sort of having a, an inherent like substance, we would talk about its actual physical character, something along those lines. Um, and so all of this is basically the way that like Kant like um, transforms reason into a tool that has an appropriate use and within its, you know, within the context of its appropriate use, it is possible for knowledge to be saved and for essentially the world of the natural sciences of the time of, you know, Isaac Newton, that world is able to sort of exist in the way that, uh, you know, Newton and Kant imagined it. You know, that's that being like the real world of the natural sciences. Um, our ability to make empirical judgments that are grounded in a way and resistant to Hume's skeptical um, critique, which Kant considers himself to have answered through this sort of diagnostic process of reason. But what that limits us to is the world of the phenomenal, 
the world of empirical reality, human experience, and this is where he says, you know, I can't make any claims about the thing in itself. Objects as they exist beyond human perception or outside of human perception, we can't say anything about those. We don't, we can't say if they're, you know, innately sort of constituted or structured according to the categories of our understanding or space and time. That's simply a feature of human perception, which is the only area that we're able to explore um, and uh, with the confidence that our judgments convey logical uh, validity and soundness. Well, so, it, so I mean, we we have more to talk about me, but I, I just always, I feel like, so he's safeguarding kind of the, the judgments, observations we can make about the phenomenal world, but he's also, he's kind of doing the opposite too, right? Like if, if the thing in itself cannot be kind of, you know, if he can't actually get to it because the structure of our minds, you know, mm-hmm limit basically right the noumena like he, but he's also he so he is safeguarding basically spiritual truths right so like the idea that like science could disprove the existence of god has also been taken off the table essentially to put it in really crude terms um is that accurate or i mean I, that, that's kind of me basically setting you up to be honest yeah that's kind of i mean going outside of you know the critique of pure reason and involving also the critique of judgment and some of his other texts um he you know, considers himself a believer. He's basically a sort of deist. And he, um, it's complicated how he arrives at some of his positions that essentially they fall prey to the antinomies of reason. You know, they're, they're places where logic takes us in opposite directions and you can't really adjudicate the dispute between opposite conclusions when it comes to, you know, things like the existence of God, the existence of, you know, the cosmos, the existence of the human soul. Um, they are things that can be coherently thought. And when he ends up bringing in his moral philosophy, there's a way in which some of these things can be sort of, uh, you know, sort of guaranteed on the moral plane is where they're actually given, but not sort of intellectually. So it's it's very complicated, like in the sort of architectonics of um, Kant's thought, how these things fit together. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, in the generation right after Kant, like they, you know, basically see no need for, you know, the notion of an unreachable noumenal world. And simply do away with it and concern themselves with, you know, like um, this sort of phenomenality. But it's a, you know, the other thing that I'll, I'll mention now that I think is very interesting is that this really does sound sort of a philosophical theme that, um, you know, comes up again and again in the history of philosophy. And just in the last couple of centuries, some of the most prominent examples, um, you know, Marx with the idea of ideology, the false consciousness of the bourgeoisie, um, you know, essentially like the, the way of thinking that uh, allows them to feel okay with themselves and that doesn't have room to accommodate, um, you know, like things that are, uh, you know, that that would not reflect well on them or that would threaten their status, um, their class status. And then, of course, much later um, within the context of psychoanalysis, um, there's this uh, idea that Zizek picks up on from Lacan, which is the idea of the real, which is the, you know, that in reality, which evades any attempt to symbolically represent it. There's a sense in which um, you know, there's a, a way in which the world, um, you know, exists in a way that just can't be accessed by thought. And that creates this sense of dread and anxiety that, you know, it sometimes becomes like almost visible. And, um, you know, it really, uh, you know, it fills you with doubt, or you don't know why, you know, you, you think a certain way, or, or you have these like misgivings, you can't really trace, they don't really have propositional content exactly. And this, you know, we'll get into later, of course, with, uh, Lovecraft as well. But then on the other side, there's, you know, a more positive charged sort of valence for this, the work of, uh, you know, say, contemporary Catholic philosopher Jean-Luc Marion, specifically in the area of saturated phenomena, 
So he's working in the phenomenological tradition. You know, they take up this sort of enlightenment philosophical subject and they add, you know, this notion of intentionality. Consciousness is always directed. It's always consciousness of something. And you still have a sort of active, you know, um, perceiver who, you know, in phenomenology and phenomenological terms plays a very active role in um, rendering, you know, like the objects of perception and essentially, um, you know, plays a role in, in actively uh, constituting like, you know, objects of thought. And Marion's, um, you know, contribution in this area is to talk about saturated phenomena, where instead of a subject who sort of, um, you know, mentally reaches out and, you know, plays a determinative role in the shape an object takes and its meaning, um, there are certain phenomena, and he talks about, you know, theophany, passion for God being one of these, where the direction of intentionality is reversed and the subject is being constituted by something that's absolutely overwhelming to them. Uh, yeah. These are all examples of, you know, variations on this theme of, you know, our fundamental alienation from things. It's a very modern theme um, and which, uh, you know, is, is essentially a product of abstract thought. To return to Zizek again for just a moment, he has this book on violence where he talks about abstract thought as being, you know, inherently violent. You take something and you essentially perform a kind of intellectual vivisection. <laughs> and that's something that's, you know, becomes possible when you can identify like the component parts of an organic whole. You know, so you you dissect the frog in your mind. It becomes something that, you know, is, is of course, like, could not live. It's, you know, when you separate out all these pieces. And that being just simply a, a function of thought that it kills and destroys and does violence to, you know, its contents. Um, and, of course, that's, like, not even to touch, you know, other themes in the history of philosophy where, you know, say, Horkheimer and Adorno, the dialectic of enlightenment, where, you know, enlightenment reason is taken to, you know, have a sort of dominating... Um, you know, sort of hidden valence, and that being like really at the heart of the whole project, um, which is something else that maybe we'll touch on later as we get more into, you know, how Roberts actually uses the ideas of enlightenment reason in the ways that he does. Yeah, well, so, so I was going to say, so that is, by the way, thank you for that. That was incredible. Yeah, thank you a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> genuinely informative um, in, a, in a way that neither Bill or I could replicate. But also, I, I like so many of the elements you touched on, um, especially the idea of, you know, our alienation from the real, the thing itself. And I think what's bizarre about this novel is that um, I think it takes place at exactly the plane of ideas which you've laid out, right? It takes place in like a sandbox of everything you just described, only it's tied to what's basically a sci-fi thriller. And um, <laughs> at, the, at the risk of doing, you know, making Bill do a, a different version of this, uh, you know, we usually summarize the book in an effort to kind of ground people. But I'm curious, Bill, yeah, because I, I think the philosophy is so integral to the actual novel that it would be helpful to kind of like give some of the basic plots so that as we're discussing it, you know, we can reference it without maybe always explaining what we just referenced. Yeah, no, I thought what I'd do, so this book is uh, very interesting as a formal project in about three different ways, and we're going to get into the depth of what I mean by that and what the other two guys have to say about that in more detail later. So it's 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 broken up into 12 chapters, and I'm going to kind of briefly hit what happens in each of them, because I think it's the kind of book where that would be helpful for the summary in advance. But basically, the project of this book, well, it's a couple different projects. Let me start that again. There is no one it's a project. It's a, dozen pro it's a dozen projects. <laughs> this book projects, is a lot of maybe, projects. Yeah. But, but one of the big ones, and the one that I think if you had to pick one, is what if everything Martin just said, right, about Kant's metaphysics and epistemology, so again, 
There's the real world, the thing itself. We can't make any claims about that. Everything we perceive about it, space, time, causality, that's structured. That's our minds, right? Interacting with something, the thing itself. But all of the things we see in terms of space and time is essentially a lens our minds put over reality, right? So what if that was true, right? What if that was a scientific truth that you could prove with science? How could you use that to do cool things? And how would that impact, you know... If that was if those things were fiddled with, if the actual thing in itself was fiddled with somehow, how would that those changes sort of rear forth into human experience? That's kind of what the book is about. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, I think it's good. Yeah. Um, so the book is structured into twelve chapters. Um, every other one, so one, three, five, seven, nine, and eleven, are from the perspective of a guy Charles Gardner, and they all form one coherent narrative. Everything else, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, and 12, are sort of short stories from the universe of the thing itself that all do definitely hook into and are important to understand the Charles Gardner narrative, but uh, bounce around wildly from different time periods, ranging from, you know, 1900, 1695, the early 19th century, and then far into the future, right? Uh, so... In the first one, Charles Gardner and Roy Curtius uh, are at in, in Antarctica. They're astrophysicists working in the mid-80s to study the skies for signs of alien life. Charles Gardner is an astrophysicist, but otherwise sort of a normal dude. Roy Curtius is a deeply weird weirdo <laughs> who has brought with him as his only book a copy of Kant's Critique of Pure Reason uh, down to Antarctica. Whereas, you know, Charles Gardner is reading, like, Dune, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's my that's my right. Roy Curtius has decided that... Uh, like we said, that the Kant's critique of pure reason is correct, and the categories are the right way to think about the world, and he's going to try to use computers to prove this. But he's gone pretty far off the rails and ends up ultimately um, trying to kill Charles Gardner by f- leaving him out in the Antarctic cold and trying to have some kind of connection to the thing itself. Uh, Charles wakes up in the cold, has a deeply strange experience. He can't tell if it's hallucinatory or what, where he sees... Uh, he seems to teleport wild distances up to the coast before coming back to the outside. He sees vis- visions he can't understand, flames and sylphs in the air and piles of rubble ru- rolling up mountains, all of which are, he understands are clearly metaphors to try to describe what he's seeing. Uh, Roy tries to kill himself and fails, and uh, the rest of Charles Gardner's life is a disaster. He's lost a bunch of fingers and toes, and his face is scarred from the frostbite he suffered when he was left out in the Antarctic cold, and he is plagued for the rest of his life by hallucinations and nightmares. That's chapter one. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) That's the kind of book this is. Uh, (laughs) Chapter two takes us to uh, 1900, where a gay couple are traveling Germany, uh, with a uh, Baedeker, is that how you say it? Baedeker? Baedeker. Baedeker, okay. Uh, which is basically a collection, not positive. Of, basically a collection of early 20th century, late 19th century travel guides. They're traveling around Germany, uh, trying to not get caught out for being a gay couple in Germany in 1900, and also occasionally being interrupted by strange visions they do not understand of vast and troubling eldritch monstrosities in the sky or, you know, groups of tadpoles cl- uh, writhing around on the ground. Yeah, the... That sounds right for Germany, actually. I feel I, like yeah, honestly. Probably... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds, in mean, the Alps, you know, Eldritch monstrosities. Okay, sorry, keep going. In chapter three, we travel forward to, I think it's about 2017. Uh, Charles Gardner has become a bin man after basically failing out of academia and becoming an alcoholic. He uh, is constantly pursued by a hallucination of a, a boy who is a ghost with a burned face, face 
He's picked up by a gorgeous woman named Irma and taken to an institute. The institute is trying to create an AI because an AI would be able to see past the categories, right? Would not be, or not be constrained by the categories, rather. Would not parse reality via the categories and could therefore possibly manipulate the thing itself, thereby allowing humans to, you know, do away with things like space-time and to travel enormous distances or possibly travel through time. Uh, they want Roy's help and they think Charles can help him get it. It's a very long chapter, but I think that's basically the summary for that one. Roy is, by the way, in an insane asylum. In chapter four, we have a brief sort of Joycean interlude where there is a young woman living in Spain near the Rock of Gibraltar who is having an affair with an Englishman and is talking to something, uh, a ghost, a demon, who knows what, called Pedro, and there's magic and the Rock of Gibraltar gets bigger. And then Pedro leaves her. I mean, right? I'm, not, I'm just trying to... <laughs> chapter five, Broadmoor. No, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> chapter five is Broadmoor. Um, Charles Gardner goes to see Roy Curtius at the Insane Asylum, gives him a phone that is going to be important later. And then later when he goes to his hotel, uh, Roy Curtius appears, having broken out of the hospital, and in the most compelling scene of absolute horror in the book, uh, using some kind of telekinesis, pulls Charles' tendon out of his leg, uh, thereby laming him. Chapter 6 is probably the hardest one to read. It is a uh, narrative told in the late 17th century of a young boy named Thomas who is basically sold as a sex slave to a judge in England. Um, it's a pretty brutal chapter. Uh, uh, ultimately, he ends up having sort of a strange experience with a parson out in the woods where he becomes sort of possessed by something and then develops basically the magical ability to manipulate space and time in interesting ways, kills a lot of people by basically crushing their organs, and then eventually is hung for a warlock. He also uh, remember, describes his experiences as talking to St. Peter. I should mention that when at the Institute, Charles also hears a lot about somebody named Peter, or Peter, but he doesn't know who that is. Chapter 7 is called Pursuit. Charles Gardner wakes up in a hospital, tries to go to the Institute. They don't recognize him there. No, that's already happened. That happened in the last chapter. Sorry. That happened in the last chapter. Then in Charles 7, uh, <laughs> chapter 7, Charles wakes up in the hospital. Uh, it appears that everyone in the Institute is dead. The cops thinks he, think he did it. He gets a phone, which turns out to actually be a computer, which is possessed by PETA, who's the AI that the Institute created. PETA and Charles break out and try to go north to get away from Roy. Chapter 8 is the fan for catching old-fashioned diseases, which is basically a little short story about... Uh, future utopia where the use of applied Kant or AK has created a sort of Star Trek utopia where we're, we're freed from material restrictions and you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else basically there's kind of an interesting story there but it probably we can skip that for now chapter 9 is called a dialogue in four parts it, this is told as a as a sort of a platonic dialogue between Charles and PETA who is the AI in his phone uh, although there's also stage directions and basically they talk about the ca categories and Charles has this conversation with this AI that can see through the categories. He edits Kant's categories, adds some more, you know, removes some. Most importantly is he thinks that there's a category called love, and he basically thinks that it's very important to think that there's basically something called God underneath the categories. Chapter 10 is the last three days of the time war. Uh, at some point in the future, time travel has happened. There was a time war. People are traveling back from the uh, future to prevent things from happening in the time war, but in doing so, they become sort of quantum shadows of themselves and eventually fade out. A person living in this time frame falls in love with a ghost, which is what they call these. Uh, no, no, don't, don't explain it. Don't explain it. <laughs> Chapter eleven, called "Seek and Thing," uh, wraps up the end of Charles's story. Charles and Peta get caught by the cops uh, for various in various ways. Roy breaks Charles out of where he's being held, teleports him to the North Pole. Everyone who's been involved in the story so far shows up, and Charles basically uh, ends up 
watching as Roy gets shot to death and the two halves of PETA, which we'll come back to later, get connected. And it turns out that everything that's been happening so far is PETA basically the AI trying to generate enough sort of energy to kick himself out of the entire constraints of time entirely. So by he, I mean they, because there's kind of a male and a female half of PETA. So they kick out from the North Pole back to 1984, causing this thing that happened to... Charles back in Antarctica in 1984, possessing the girl in Gibraltar, possessing the boy in uh, 17th century England, and then presumably kicking out of space entirely. The boy that's been haunting Charles the whole time is a vision of Thomas from the 17th century. Charles has an experience where he sees basically a series of human souls moving around. Uh, It's a beautiful experience, and then he, you know becomes not an atheist anymore. Chapter 12 <laughs> is... Well, that's what he said. No, he doesn't say specifically no, what, but he I'm says he's sorry. not an atheist no, anymore. That's great. Chapter 12 is a really beautiful coda where we see the last days of Immanuel Kant um, as he's slowly losing his mind. And it's a really beautiful sequence. So that's a lot all at once, although it's not the longest summary I've given. I think, again, about the time I tried to summarize Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell yeah. and like 30 minutes later realized I needed to stop. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason I did it chapter by chapter is not just because I think you need to understand how sort of wild this book is but also because there's a lot of structural stuff he's doing and i think it'll be helpful if we can kind of have uh we can talk about chapters without summarizing them as we go so does anybody have any major notes they want to change obviously i've left out most of the book but does anybody have any other big stuff they think we should have mentioned now i don't know if you want to get into like the sort of um mechanics of the plot as it relates to the structure but uh you know the idea of PETA basically in the 2017 arctic sequence ramping up to jump right back out of time and then each of the chapters representing like the you know the ripples forward into the future Mm, that allow for time travel to be possible but then also each of the occurrences in the earlier chapters the Baedeker chapter um the 17th century those being like sort of like the steps that Peter is taking as he's launching himself out of time because I think that's yeah structurally worth mentioning yeah, so he has to he has to kind of skip the the idea is Peter has to kind of hop skip and a jump to get the momentum essentially to kick out of time and that's why he's possessed the two other people and in doing so he talks about like pressing his feet into the sand to jump out that's a metaphor he uses several times um, including in the chapters themselves and so all those sort of short story chapters are either moments where Peter is doing that as in the 17th century and in Gibraltar or they're sort of eddies caused by him doing that right so all the mysterious things that are our gay couple in Germany are seeing is clearly caused by this, you know, jumping out of time, right? And then the future chapters are the things that were made possible by this jump out of time, right? By the sort of scientific data that people collected by doing this. Um, they mm-hmm. talk in the time time war chapter about how you can't actually travel in time past this 2017 moment, right? So you can't go back to the 19th century. You can only go to 2017 and afterwards. So I think, so I, I have like a thousand questions for you guys about alien life forms in the Germany chapter and more. But I, I did want to kind of tie together these two important pieces of table setting, which is that I am someone who essentially has no real context for Kant. I, I did, you know, I was a philosophy undergrad in kind of, you know, one of my generic Western philosophy classes. I definitely read some Kant and didn't really get it probably. And then I had some, you know, some more information about Kant given to me when I was doing a master's in English. But again, I was like an actually bad student. Like sometimes Bill and I joke about that, but I, you know, I was like a, you know, almost an autodidact who got degrees on accident because I just read what I wanted to and kept getting degrees. But all to say is this book is, it's a sci-fi thriller, a sci-fi romp 
right? The goal is to kind of, I think, move you through it fast at the, you know, with the impetus of plot, obviously. But I came away from this book, and this is kind of, you know, for you, Martin, if you're okay jumping in, like, I came away from this book feeling like I could talk about Kant at least at the level of spark notes, right? <laughs> like, I might not have, like, a good idea of anything that's outside of this book as far as, you know, some of the things you mentioned earlier. But I, I feel like he is he really does accomplish a didactic project that's very hard to do in fiction. And I was curious as someone, you know, who knows Kant better, like, does that feel accurate to you? Like, do you think taking Kant, you know, obviously, you know, you can, you can kind of tell where Roberts is doing his own stuff. He has PETA explicitly edit Kant. But at the same time, I feel like you could actually read this book with basically no information and come away with a genuine, at least impression of what the categories are trying to de describe. Do you think that's accurate? Um, yeah, you'd get, I think like, a. I mean, there's even the diagram at one point of the, you know, the 12 categories right. um, and the four like divisions of those. And that's, you know, elaborated at length in I think chapter three. Um, yeah, the stuff that, you know, Roberts takes from Kant, he represents, I think accurately, but he also, obviously it's tendentious. He, has a purpose for all this and he really um you know most of the time like uh you know he's really just like taking what he needs to make his conceit work it really is kind of like a very sophisticated MacGuffin. um yes he's he's you know he's he's um not exploring you know like some kind of uh you know like a hard sci-fi you know sort of empirical paradigm it really is just like a thought experiment that turns into you know like what if it were possible to manipulate reality as such outside the context of human construals of that reality? Um, you know, he says in uh, comments on a blog post um, at the New Atlantis that I believe one of you linked, he says, you know, he was really taken with the, well, I mean, this comes up in the book too. It's the idea that like our original ideas about robots, they basically resembled us. And then, you know, we realized, you know, in like the 1970s and 80s, a robot actually looks like a sort of single arm that articulates at like seven points and installs a single bolt into like the chassis of a car on an assembly line. <laughs> right. And so it was kind of, you know, a process of like developing technology beyond, you know, sort of the, um, the first uh, model that we had for that type of technology, which was essentially creating it in our own image. And that's, I think, like, uh, sort of like through line for, you know, the idea of the thing itself. Like there's a way in which a lot of this has to do, as all good sci-fi, you know, has to do with like our current world in an important mm -hmm. way and sort of like throws like, you know, like a new light on like given reality. The thing itself is really what he uses to explore maybe like um, aspects of human being that are denied in various epics for various reasons um and you know that are kind of repressed and that are still somehow available and um that's like i think like what he's getting at you know keeping things in kind of like a you know like a literary context he's using it to expand the stock of available reality for us <laughs> like yes. you know this sort of like um these like these imaginative um chapters where he you know where he does very effective you know pastiche and uh mimicry in some cases like it's it's incredible like the the you know the molly bloom-esque mm -hmm. you know chapter of pure affirmation it really does work as you said in um you know your notes joel like it it 
and it's something that probably shouldn't work, but you know, like the idea, like that chapter being one of affirmation, a woman without social capital in a time when, you know, like her longing and her desire and her own thoughts, you know, being capable of growing, you know, in physical size, this rock, you know, right at the, um, the union <laughs> or the point of meeting between, you know, the, um, European continent and Africa. Um, it's uh it's all like i guess the the thing that's most interesting to me about the philosophy is how he actually successfully transposes it into this literary project there's a way in which it um could become really pretty stultifying pretty quickly if he was just interested in conveying ideas to us but he really has a sense for how those things kind of ramify in our experience and how they you know point to really important realities i mean this is you know classic sort of um you know kind of ironically for the Englishman that he is, he's interested in, you know, the scale of continental questions, <laughs> like, yes. you know, things that really get to what's important in life. And that's just obviously not the direction that analytic philosophy has gone in. Um, but it's something that you still glimpse with people like Kant, you know, the great systematizers who are able to essentially create an entire intellectual edifice. It's kind of breathtaking, like reading Kant, I'm just filled with admiration for, you know, a mind that can produce something like this, this giant glass palace in the sky. <laughs> which is the, you know, the critique, um, and the ways that, you know, Roberts, who is, you know, like quite brilliant in his own way, you know, actually makes use of those concepts for literary purposes. That's what's most impressive to me, even as he does get, you know, like the pieces of Kant's philosophy that he wants to use, he gets them right. Um, they're not the main point of what he's doing. Well, and I think, I mean, I think the way that he enfleshes them in plot, you're right. I think he makes them immediate in, in a way that I was surprised by, but I, I, I do love that. I mean, there's, there's definitely like a romantic rejoinder going on, right? Like the idea that in romantic, both in a literal just love sense, but also you kind of mentioned it earlier with um, Kant, or maybe this was in your notes actually. You know, the the Kant chapter at the end of the at the end of the book, uh, he kind of he's thinking about electricity, which plays a big part in like Frankenstein, for example. Um, and the 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 romantic rejoinder that's coming, kind of the chaos that breaks up the neoclassical neatness that Kant is a part of in some ways. I feel like mm -hmm. this book also does embody that because every time like you actually get around the human categories, right? Um, Roy Curtius and the narrator Charles, but even these other characters who kind of see these wild things, they're they're they are made more free, but it is like there's a there's a chaotic element to it that makes it freeing, <laughs> not like a neat element that makes it freeing, right? Yes, I, I completely agree, and I think that's uh, you know that's one of the upshots. Like really, it's coded in the project, you know, in Kant's own project, the idea of the thing itself, at least in how Roberts uses them. This kind of um, yeah, this like reservoir of like meaning and you know sort of human dynamism that um is a is really not um something that can be surrendered it's irrepressible ultimately like yes. you know every encounter that these characters in these chapters have with the thing itself it's it seems to me that there's something that's kind of unlocked or that they're freed to do or think there's something like sort of transformative that happens like something that's activated in them by these like bizarre, you know, like um, occurrences and visions and all the different ways that it manifests. And I really also like the way that, yeah, like um, as you're saying, like the, the Kant chapter at the end, he's, you know, really, um, you know, in his dotage, in his senescence, he's confused about who his butler is. Um, he's filled with sort of like ambiguous mm -hmm. 
yearning that makes him question whether he got his entire moral philosophy wrong, um, whether uh, you know he should instead have provided some justification for the embrace of you know like desires that he considers to be forbidden. And again, this is one more, you know, like experience it, like when he's basically just starting to lose his grip on his faculties, or really like he's pretty far gone in that process by the time we actually encounter Kant at the end of the book. It's at that point that he becomes open in a new way to life, even if only privately and only in the context of his own mind. And yeah, like, you know, it's interesting to me. It's, I don't, I didn't actually look this up if it's a real figure in history, but, you know, Dr. Augustine, um, of obviously the reference to the famous Christian philosopher, you know, with his book on Galvanism, which, you know, like became this intellectual fad, as you mentioned, that, you know, like Mary Shelley took and, um, you know, used in the context of this new Gothic fiction, the sort of proto sci-fi that, you know, it gives rise to and how, you know, the horizon is really like within view for him as he's passing out of life, you know, as we head into the 19th century with romanticism and the kind of, um, you know, like return of, you know, very assertive, like, irrationality and upholding of, you know, like the wild um, dynamic forces at play in human life that aren't containable within neat rational schemas and how that really, you know, like thought is a human project, you know, and often it's a project of real passion and, um, you know, is subject to those same forces. And there's a way in which it needs to be honest about its own, you know, like context and the things that give rise to it and its own nature. And that's one of the things that, you know, is so beautifully brought into the content of this book is how you know like no matter how robust the purely intellectual side of the project is it can't um it can't uh you know completely cut away that irrepressible unexplored bottomless reservoir of you know like new sides of humanity which is really what the thing itself i think is kind of pointing to well it's we'll get into theology later yeah. i think but you know like, well, i was gonna say i definitely i think I think, you know, I think it's a project that like it marshals all of the like you said, impressive intellectual, you know, artillery of Kant and other things. Like he, I, he has a whole, because okay, he has a whole philosophical project going on, which is in, you know, conversation with a whole uh, stylistic, you know, history of literature project <laughs> that he's also messing around with. But I think, um, <laughs> I, I think he is marshalling the artillery of all these big ideas in the name of basically these very touching points of you know yeah human expression and for me i mean like okay this conversation by the way sorry if everyone's listening you know it is going to be all over the place because the book is just it's crazy it's just (laughs) it's crammed with so many ideas like we're already talking about the ending but because you brought it up martin and i brought it up too i guess but i can't i don't know this is true for you guys i i thought the ending was was beyond touching and and i think it captures the way in which the intellectual project enables kind of the emotional ideas and emotional whatever um context because like the the boy you know some version of PETA basically that he seems to be talking to Kant they have this discussion about senescence being a sort of expansion that there's this way in which yes this kind of bodily mode of mind is ending but that the degradation is also sort of a new beginning of the soul and it it sounds all abstract and almost like Plato-esque and whatever else but I found it really really touching because you know, I've I've known people in their dotage, and I've known people in their senescence, and there's a way in which like he's giving them like a, a certain like you said irrepressible human dignity, and I thought that was just such a moving way to end, especially because Kant, you know, the great 
you know, yeah, the great mind in the sky. I don't know. I guess I was curious, uh, Bill and Martin. I don't know. Was that did that did that hit you at the end, or was it just like a, you know, was it just so many ideas that you were thinking about the ideas? <laughs> no, I think it's a. I mean, it's a very, uh, it's a very touching portrayal there at the end. And of course, the way it ends is, you know, the curtains are drawn back, and then the word light twelve times, right? Um, which I, I think is a great way to end the book. The use of light throughout the book is, is consistent. Uh, obviously at the, at the end of Charles's story, he sees the, the light everywhere and, and how light doesn't quite fit neatly into the categories because of the way it behaves so strangely in human experience. Uh, and all the lights of all the different sort of human souls, basically he sees walking around the place. Uh, again, when he, when he decides to take the gig at the Institute, there's a line about light, light, everything's light. Right. Right. Uh, and I, th- I thought it was a very touching moment. I think, I think one thing that it's easy to forget about, when we're talking about this book and all the sort of very uh, high concept ideas it's dealing with is I think the book with maybe a few exceptions in the third chapter really works as just like a, like keeping you moving and, and working on a fairly basic entertaining and emotional level as well. Does that make sense? And I, I think it's one of the great triumphs of the book that it manages to do both really high concept stuff on philosophy and literary experimentation, and I think pretty much work as a thriller. Do you know what I mean? Not that I'm saying I would hand it to every James Patterson fan. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but I, I just mean the book is still satisfying to read as on sort of a what happens next moment as well, you know? Yeah, and And absolutely. I think that that's, that's one of the real triumphs of the book is you don't have to have, you know, a, a Martin Wendell Jones familiarity with Kant <laughs> to still appreciate it. Um, and so, yeah, right. I mean, to answer the actual question you asked, I thought the ending worked really well. Boom. Look at me answering a question with, you know, 700 unrelated tangents. <laughs> uh, that's this podcast, my man. <laughs> Remember that time you asked me if Connie Willis wrote good sci-fi and I started talking about theology? That was really good. I, I... <laughs> we talked about the problem of evil for 30 minutes. Yeah, I do remember that. One thing I really want to talk about, uh, we, we've talked about the project of the book in terms of, you know, what he's trying to do with Kant's ideas and so on, and those are all very important. But one thing he's doing a lot of, and I think we've mentioned this, is pastiching or parodying or imitating a lot of different writers and literary styles, right? Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about this because I think it's one of the more interesting things in the project and the one I absolutely was not expecting when I picked up the book. Um, I don't recognize all the references. Sometimes I can tell there is something happening, but I don't know what it is. Uh, for instance, I, not having read James Joyce, it wasn't until someone else pointed out that Chapter 4 is Joyce that I was like, well, of course it is. Even I should have recognized that. But James, Chapter 4 is definitely vamping on Joyce. It's all one sentence, and it's all stream of consciousness, and the word yes is thrown throughout it. And I actually think, now that I think about it, isn't her daughter Molly, and doesn't her daughter go to Ireland? Yeah, so she's supposed to be Molly Bloom's mom, I think is the... Yeah, I think you're right about that. Not that I really know exactly what that means, but anyway, uh, you know, he'll, <laughs> uh, he, the entire section from the perspective of the 17th century boy is written in a sort of, uh, in a 17th century style. I mean, or at least what appears to be, I can't speak to the accuracy of it, not having read much or any 17th century fiction, but you know, he'll use and as an ampersand with a D he capitalizes random nouns and so on. Um, the future chapters feel a lot like they could have come out of a page of Clark's world in like 20 a few years later, uh, which I used to subscribe to. And actually, the first chapter of this book was published in Clark's World in 2015, so I feel pretty confident oh. saying that that's the sort of vibe he's going for. Oh, I didn't know that, Yeah, I didn't actually. either. Um, I actually think maybe I read it at one point. That's why it felt very familiar. But anyway, um, so, you know, by, by Clark's World, I mean contemporary science fiction, right? And I mean very contemporary. Mm-hmm. Not, right. not like 1990s sci-fi, but like right now sci-fi. Yeah. Um, and he's definitely a couple times at least tipping his hat towards Lovecraft. Well, I'll probably have to get into Lovecraft more in a minute. But definitely his description of Charles's first encounter with the thing itself 
wants to make you think about Shoggoths. That's not actually what the book ends up being about, but I think he's trying to make you think about it for a moment, right? So when he sees it, he says, for instance, there was a hint of, I'm going to say, claws, jaws, a clamping something, a maw, not a tentacle, nothing so defined, which feels a lot like a more modern attempt right. to do Lovecraft's, you know, mm -hmm. I couldn't describe it, but I had a simultaneous, you know, impression of a human, a dragon, and a squid. You know what I mean? Or an octopus. Mm -hmm. That same sort of, like, giving you just enough details to get you your brain working. Um, so he really wants to make you think of Shoggoths. Also, of course, I wouldn't be surprised. Adam Roberts loves puns. If you guys follow him on Twitter, which I think you do. <laughs> Boy, like, he is like the king of all puns. All he does on Twitter, it's not true. He does a lot of things. Uh, by the way, I don't know if I, Adam Roberts is a contemporary British writer. I don't think I said this. Uh, uh, he's oh, still, we probably <laughs> didn't mention him. Yeah, he, he still <laughs> writes uh, He writes all kinds of stuff. This is the only book-length work, work of his I've read, but he writes criticism. He writes uh, novels, all kinds of stuff, mostly sci-fi, I think. And uh, he also writes just a metric ton of puns every day on Twitter. It's like a job it's incredible uh, and so i would be i would bet decent money that this whole book came about because he said ha what if i wrote something called the thing itself that was a horror novel set in antarctica like the thing like john carpenter only about kant and then he just really followed that all the way i would bet actually decent money that that is what happened um because actually most of the book does not happen in antarctica but the cover is you know two guys in an antarctic wasteland and it's the thing itself so i would bet again just a lot of money that that's what happened well, so I th I have two ideas from that though, which is one I think it's so funny because he even explicitly references the thing, right? He says it wasn't like that at all. It wasn't thingy, <laughs> which I I actually <laughs> I don't love to be honest. I actually think he needed to cut some pop culture references, but I liked it as a as a starting off point because ironically though, like this book isn't a I think if it's taking a a current like kind of film or kind of pop genre trope. It's actually <laughs> what I call like the person in your ear knows what to do and you're on the run genre. Yeah. Right. So like there's lots of like, there's been recent ones that are about AI specifically um, an Australian film upgrade one recently with Melissa McCarthy, super intelligence. Um, I think I can't find my note. And then actually, but it even to me, it felt like pace wise and set wise, like, like the set pieces really recalled me to Minority Report. And I, I think that, like, the thing about Adam, Adam Roberts, which I, I might go back and throw in a little insert about who he is at the beginning of this. <laughs> but um, he, 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 is like the, he is like the intellectual omnivore, right? He consumes everything. I mean, I think he did a Latin translation of Finnegan's Wake, which... That sounds right. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> but, but also, he, I mean... He has enough time, enough mental energy to like be a Cambridge Don, to be an active sci fi writer, to be like, I think he's a professor of 19th century literature. So even though he is like an H.G. Wells uh, expert as well, his actual time is the 19th century. And, um, and yeah, he, and then he also has time to kind of be very, very current on all of these different sci fi genres. For, for, like for me, yeah, like a lot of the main narrative of Charles is actually basically like a Will Smith enemy of the state plot right a man on the run from the authorities who has a you know an insider helping him get through impossible like spy-esque adventures um and i just i just think i mean i, I guess I mean, i'm off on the you know a different subject now but i find that incredible that he can actually marry this kind of high and low concepts into a what i think is actually a coherent plot a coherent narrative um it's marvelous. But other thing I wanted to mention, and it kind of circles back to, to you a little bit, Martin, and the the whole, like, this is not like the thing. This is not thingy. I feel like it is con contrasting with um, 
Lovecraft, but it's also like contrasting with like the hexicity of like like Germanly Hopkins, the thisness of things, which feels to me like very biological as opposed to outside of biology. And I guess either of you can talk about, do you think Lovecraft, is he more like biological or is it, you know, I've read a little bit like, is he more biological? Would that be a correct kind of distinction from the horrors going on here between the thing itself and something like Mountains of Madness? Or is it still pretty abstract? Well, I was going to give my 30,000 foot view of Lovecraft and Roberts. I think that like Roberts is certainly, you know, like thinking of Lovecraft and is kind of using him as a foil um, for, you know, as he as he basically evokes these mind defeating realities, which the thing I love about Lovecraft is, you know, of course, it's just that cosmic horror and you have a bit of that, you know, sort of cosmic horror sensibility in the thing itself, of course. But fundamentally, you know, at the most basic level there, I think that, you know, Roberts is creating a universe that's, you know, like in which the the fundamental reality that defeats our minds is one that's not um, inhospitable to us. Like Lovecraft, you know, I think of like the the non-Euclidean geometries and, you know, like the, you know, people fleeing, you know, like Cthulhu's Island and, you know, like, and, and just the sheer, it's like a universe that I think does have kind of a Darwinian aspect to speak to your, you know, your, um, reference to biology and biological writing. Like there's a way in which these are just like absolutely massive, you know, ancient, you know, ghastly monsters that have simply no concern for human life, just as we don't have concern for like the ants that we, you know, crush, you know, inside our homes. And, um, you know, it really, but it really does follow sort of like the, the bare logic of survival and domination and destruction and that's all that there is to it there's not you know like there's not a even a malevolence it's it's like a sort of like disregard for you know like our tiny puny selves um and the sort of horror of you know like these realities that are so in excess of um the human mind capacities and constantly overwhelm us with roberts with the way that he used the thing itself and the way that he sort of hinges this theological argument you have instead, you know, like the scene at the end that we already mentioned with, or in chapter 11 with, you know, Pita bathed in light, like this sort of like, um, you know, this many splendored environment where we see this constellation of human souls that are just, you know, sort of like, as though they're under, you know, like illuminated stained glass and showing all these different sides. And even Pita, you know, themselves like showing, you know, like a male and a female side, um, for both the uh, the narrator from the Bloom chapter and then also uh, Thomas from chapter six, like sort of being combined in one visage and um, being sort of like the host for this like, you know, super creature. But, you know, he talks about like the fundamental question being whether the thing itself is fundamentally, you know, essentially if, it, if it's lifeless or inert um, or if instead, you know, it's something else. And Roberts clearly wants to show that, you know, like for perception to work, for us to be able to inhabit a mental universe at all, for there to be, you know, an idea of coherence, the transcendental unity of apperception, everything else, like, um, you know, the thing itself has, it, it is essentially accommodating itself to us. Um, it's the sort of like unreachable, uh, you know, figure of divinity, but that, uh, you know, is the condition of possibility of all human life and experience. And in that way, it's, um, you know, of course, very, very different from from Lovecraft. Like there's a sense of like menace and threat as with anything unknown. But as you know, like, you know, you see this in like the sort of spiritual writing, you know, like the sort of divestment of experience and everything that you can be confident in and rely on 
um, you know, as you sort of go spelunking in ultimate spiritual reality, you know, like St. John of the Cross, right. like, you know, you basically let yes. go of your ability to sort of conceive of things and, and really, uh, you know, articulate with concepts and like, you know, establish sort of your intellectual domain. You, you divest yourself of all of that and open yourself up to a kind of like pure experience, which is like deeply unsettling if you take that sort of thing seriously. Um, for how it just, you know, basically decenters your own mind from your own experience. <laughs> and uh, so it, it has a sort of like threatening and destabilizing aspect, but at the same time, like, you know, while it's not safe, it's good <laughs> to, you know, yes. drop in like this little C.S. Lewis reference, which I, I wonder if Roberts has, uh, you know, written about Lewis, actually, they seem to share some interesting preoccupations, but um, yeah, there's a way in which uh, like Roberts is kind of um, finding a new creative direction for something that uh, does, uh, you know, show signs of being in kind of like a Lovecraftian lineage. Although, you know, I think of, you know, like Robert's um, bibliography, like H.G. Wells is the one that he's written the um, biography of. I'm not sure, you know, what his actual interest in Lovecraft is, but I think that he, yeah, that he is consciously evoking the connection and a number of the set pieces here in the ways that I think is spent like most effectively in the Baedeker chapter, chapter two. I love the way that the, you know, the sort of um, experiences of the narrator, his name is Harold, right? I think that's right. But then, yeah, so the way the narrator of that chapter, you know, has these sudden visions that terrify this entire town. And then in the very next line, he's back to, you know, like listing the number of, you know, like Protestants, members of the military and Jews in some German town they're about to visit because of, you know, like the guy that he's using. I love the way that it evokes like essentially the character of trauma. Like there's something that just can't be incorporated into experience or memory <laughs> at the same time that you've been witness to. And that, you know, provides again, this sort of like undercurrent of dread and anxiety. The thing that you can't actually look at, that you can't face, that you can't sort of like bring into some kind of circuit with the rest of your mind and your memory. Um, it's something that you've simply been, that's simply passed through your experience and that's really like, you know, that's horrified you, but that you can't actually like think about it. Truly, it has a traumatic character. And the way that he approaches that in the form of the second chapter with these like very abrupt cuts away from, you know, like these terrifying visions in the sky to like something totally mundane. I think is a really effective way of using that. And that's that does strike me as, you know, kind of Lovecraftian because it is, you know, it can't be accommodated to human categories of perception. As with all the sort of, you know, the visions of like monsters, it's like stuff that just doesn't make sense. It's incoherent according to our conceptual scheme. Um, but actually it's simply, you know, like a deeper reality or a different kind of reality that's, um, you know, sort of throttling us. Well, so I'll, I just want to, we've talked about how there's a lot of these quick cuts, but I just want to read one of them to make it clear to the listeners, because I, I think it's really worth uh, getting an example. So they're, yeah. in, they're in Frankfurt, and there's a bunch of mysterious things suddenly descending on them from the sky. And he says, Now it began advancing towards me over the cobbles of the square. Its tangle of nude muscle fiber body jittered, and weird black tentacles like tadpole tails sprung up upon its torso. Thorns made of flesh beckoning Scylla. I am not ashamed to say that I hurled myself down upon the ground, that I pressed my face against the stones, and wrapped my arms about my head, whimpering. That evening, we dined at a restaurant named Hanuksik at the very top of Jakobsberger, guys. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. I was going to read the same thing, because it's, per, it's a perfect joke. It is. And the thing that I also love about that is that the posture is one of, like, supplication and even worship. Like, 
a person who's throwing themselves at, you know, like the feet or the slithering tentacles of this apparition. Because, of course, if something approached you in that context that you just can't make sense of, you're in that extremity, you know, of course you would, like, you would have a kind of lizard brain impulse to worship whatever that thing is and cast yourself upon its mercy. <laughs> and then, you know, the next line well, there at dinner. <laughs> yeah. And then later on in that chapter, so the first times you, first time you see one of these, it's, it's that one that I just did. And there's a few other times where they're scary and at least one moment when they appear to be beautiful. And then he has the conversation with the, the man in the train and immediately he's complicating this, right? Because the guy's saying, I think maybe maybe they're just here to greet us and they don't know how. And You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. maybe these these things we're seeing are not trying to be scary, but they are. So he, he doesn't really ever let you live for very long in that these are Shoggoth's headspace, right? Even as he wants to drop you off there for a minute. And even as Charles is actually thinking maybe that's basically what's going on for a while, although he doesn't ever explicitly say that. But, you know, the first few times, once he starts considering that what he saw in Antarctica might be real rather than a hallucination, he says, well, what if we don't want to mess with this? What if the thing itself is a hell dimension, I think is his quote. Um, so that's, you know, anyway. Well, so so real quick on that, to, to bring us down to more of like kind of the, the plot, sentence writing, or at least narrative writing of the book, I did, I, so earlier, Martin, you kind of talked about that all of these sections, and I think this is true, they're like, they're like, they're, they're kind of mapping out either PETA's actual jumps through time or kind of the ripples of his jumps through time. But this is the one section where there's no direct evidence of PETA, right? Because in the future stuff, it kind of maps onto exactly the, like the 60 years or whatever it is. Um, that we see in, you know, like his time, his time jumping basically creates the ability to time travel for like 60 years. And then the very far future one is about applied Kant, but the applied Kant and this one to me seem to be basically like they're without PETA. And I feel like I, I was just curious if one, you guys agreed with that, but also, so what, so what is he, I mean, like, even if it's PETA created, what is, what are these two guys in Germany seeing? Are they seeing actual aliens that are still kind of rendered horrifically through these space-time structures of our mind? Or, or are they seeing some trail of PETA? Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's actually a, there's a vagueness here that I, I like, but I'm curious what you guys think is, is kind of happening narratively within this chapter. I think, so that's a great question um, and a really interesting observation. I think that there are, resemblances between the sort of um, sightings in chapter two, which are like, yeah, recurring, like weird, sudden upsurges of this weird reality. There are resemblances with um, then later in chapter six, I think like there, in that case, I think um, Roy Curtius is actually himself like seeing like riding these, these creatures. And they're of course, like rendered slightly differently by Thomas in the 17th century. But like, there's a, a continuity between these, um, and I think, like, the sense I get is that these are, I, I don't see them as aliens. I've never actually thought of them in that way. Although, you know, of course, I think it's possible to read them that way. I just see that, I just see it as kind of, um, yeah, expressions of this, like, deeper reality sort of impinging upon the sort of, like, workaday reality of, you know, the characters and the and the scenario. The other, the actual question that I have as well when it comes to Chapter 2 is whether the Albie, um, you know, like uh, one member of this um, gay couple was traveling through Germany, whether it's the same character as, you know, also appears in chapter four in the um, sort of Molly mm-hmm. Bloom's mom section where he's like the lover of this woman who ends up giving birth to this, um, to, to, you know, to Molly Bloom under that, under that reading. But so, you know, it's an Albie who's, you know, um, conceivably like sort of part of this, 
part of the same timeline, maybe, or maybe it's, um, you know, just meant to be like a kind of echo, but I was wondering if they're, if you take them to be the same character and yeah, what the significance of that would be, I'm not totally sure because obviously in the, in the fourth chapter with the bloom chapter, there's, you know, like the pregnancy and the, you know, the baby that, um, is to be born. Um, and also, yeah, like obviously there's a kind of, uh, you know, the, the, parallel to the sort of conceptual apparatus that only allows certain perceptions through in Kant. Um, the parallel in these chapters is sort of like the, the um, system of social expectation and, uh, you know, public mores, decorum, decency, and morality that uh, sort of um, fences in like the, you know, the possible lives for, you know, like this gay couple, for instance, or also for, you know, the woman in chapter four. Um, and there's a way in which that's kind of at play, I guess, with it. You know, the, these occurrences of the thing itself. So I, I had assumed they were. I had assumed they were the same Albi, if only because it would be weird to repeat the name twice. But I'm not sure if the timeline works. So I, because she she describes this as being the year of the war between Prussia and Denmark and all the horrors in America. I don't know what the war between Prussia and Denmark is, but when you Google war between Prussia and Denmark, what you get is the Second <laughs> Schleswig War, which occurred in 1864, which would make sense with the horrors of America that being the same time mm -hmm. for the Civil War. So mm -hmm. I don't know how Albie's, how old Albie's meant to be in the Frankfurt chapter, but it's that's 1900. So I guess I don't. I mean, it's not impossible Actually, that he could be. Doing yeah. stuff in 1864 and then also going to Germany in 1900, but I'm not sure how old he's meant to be in that. Well, especially because of his relationship with Harold, um, the narrator of chapter two, who's kind of cowed by Albie, who, you know, is taken to be like, you know, more cultured, more sophisticated, yeah. more authoritative. That's true. Like there's a way in which that could reflect kind of, you know, like a... He's um, older. Yeah, exactly. Like it could be, a you know, an older gentleman with, um, you know, a younger paramour. Well, and so, so I do want to, I want to return to the Penelope mother's section, which we're talking about with chapter six, I think. Chapter four. Or four, four, <laughs> chapter four. Um, but so, but real quick. So the only reason I wanted to hammer on this idea of like, um, Harold in Germany seeing actual aliens or not, cause I, I actually think it's not clear. I think you could make an argument that even if it's, um, PETA going through time and kind of like opening people's eyes to the thing itself which would include possibly like visiting aliens we can't see i think the book is genuinely interested in alien life and i think it's interested in how customs make things seem alien or natural which i think mm -hmm. you're talking about with social mores and stuff martin mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um but I, I think in this chapter specifically what i liked is i i think and it's hard because i think I think Adam Roberts, I think he's so curious in so many directions that even though there is coherence, at least for him there definitely is, I think there are these little like splinter narratives or splinter ideas that kind of work themselves in, even if they're not totally, uh, you can't totally fold them back into the whole. And for this one, it felt like just as Kant, applied Kant in the future, kind of allows for these manipulations of space-time that are totally... AI less, right? There's no AI helping the future. Are we saying fansoch or is it fan? I assume it's fansoch since it's fan society, but I I don't know. It might. Society. I don't okay. know if it's a real word or if it's a taster's choice. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So this, the, the the future fansoch is like it's not that's not created by PETA, right? That is a PETA less kind of moment of using Kant to manipulate sort of various material things. And it feels like actually to me that Germany is a mirror chapter of that in which, again, I, I'm not sure this is totally what Roberts has in mind, but I think you can make the argument that he, he, and he kind of puts it in there that like 
the reason the 20th century is full of UFO sightings is because we started to imagine UFOs. And so even though like we're still not seeing the thing in of itself, and we're still not seeing aliens per se, aliens as they are, the new imagery allows some people to see whatever aliens might be in this new dimension that H.G. Wells has helped create, this new imaginative, you know, kind of... Um, imagery yeah and, and i think it's i just i liked it because it was just another way for him to say like look here like the, here's what philosophy can do in the future but here's a similar role that sci-fi is playing in the past yeah i really like that and i think that there's also you know there's a neat parallel with like you know wells kind of um making possible certain kinds of perceptions um you know the thing itself manifesting maybe is almost like alien life um there's a parallel of course with uh with yeah with what we've already talked about at the end of the book with kant um, you know, like uh, reading about Calvinism and the intellectual fads that would, you know, give rise to Frankenstein and Mary Shelley. Right. So it's like two different um, birthing points for sci-fi in different um, iterations in its history, which I think is like a really cool thing to like, you know, plug into the the structure of the book in addition to his other, you know, like the other um, sort of cultural touch points he plays with, obviously like the thing and with Lovecraft, like there's a way in which he's, yeah, like placing characters at like origins and um, seeing the ways in which their perceptions are able to be expanded um, by, you know, like these notions. Because, you know, the categories, even though they are like limiting, they're also, you know, as Kant says, conditions of possibility of experience. Um, right. They, you know, they're enabling. And, you know, that's, you know, that to which the thing itself accommodates itself in human experience is, is human perception. And why, you know, like Robert's character, um, Charles comes around to, you know, the possibility of it's having this like positive sort of valence. It's being like full of life. It's, you know, like being accessed by love, like all of this, you know, kind of, uh, like points in the same, uh, yeah, points in the same direction. So I think, I do think we need to, however tenuously we approach it, um, we've given some justification for the, the literary experimentation that, um, Roberts is, undertaking but i'm curious about i'm curious on two levels you guys can make it as maybe book club level or as intellectual level as you want but i'm curious how each pastiche struck you or maybe you're like your favorite kind of uh, experiments of sci-fi historical writing and i i mean I, I have my own you know little pet theory but i i am i'm curious how you guys feel these stylistic you know chapters play into the the narrative at the level of plot, but also maybe just like the intellectual project that's going on. Why do we have a chapter that is done in the voice of the last chapter of Ulysses? You know, why do we have a chapter that's done in this 17th century voice of confession? Um, I guess, Bill, maybe I'll, I'll, make, I'll make you go first. <laughs> um, I'm just, yeah, I'm just curious what you think. Yeah. I think one reason, and I think this is very important, and my guess is it's actually the right reason, is because it would be fun if we got to do that. Um, and that's, that, that's, 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 not, that's not a joke. And that's not a, or no, that's a joke. A good, but it's, yeah. That's exactly I think, right, I think. Uh, I think that a lot of this book is Adam Roberts having fun with the idea, even as he's also chasing it to ground. Does that make sense? Um, yes. I think sometimes it actually leads him into trouble. I think sometimes Charles's narration, he's trying to have fun with it, and I think it actually falls on its face. Uh, I think chapter three is actually... Uh, bad, actually, I think is the way I would describe chapter three, which is a shame because it's the third chapter of the book. I think the other 11 chapters are excellent, and I think chapter three is actually not just not very good. Um, anyway, but coming 
that, that's that's my hot take there. So, bam, look at that. <laughs> well, uh, we, we have a disagreement a little bit because I actually think chapter one is the weakest chapter. Well, I, um, which we can come back to. Let's, let's keep but, going. <laughs> no, anyway, uh, I just uh, I think that. Um, uh, but I think that he, he wants to have fun with everything, and I think that's the first reason. Is it, wouldn't it be really fun to write a, a short story in a Joycean style that also dealt with the sci-fi thing, right? On the other hand, I think another reason to do it is to show the sort of, as Martin was saying earlier, right, taking these sort of marginalized people, right, you have this sort of woman with no social standing in, I guess, Spain in, you know, 1865 who suddenly has this sort of transcendent, um, experience and even if she can't control the rest of her life she can change the rock of Gibraltar right and it's fun to see that from her perspective and doing that in a different literary style makes you really appreciate what a different person this is right and I think uh, you know again by showing us this this different way of thinking and showing like the way Thomas is thinking in the 17th century we can get into his way of thinking by changing the style as well does that make sense like it helps mm-hmm. us it helps us clarify not because he has some surprising reactions to things right like a, a lesser writer would have had him develop the power to basically kill people with his mind and have him kill all of them and go off and live a life of happiness and luxury right but that's not what actually <laughs> happens right he he kills a few very abusive people that really nobody could fault him for, right? Uh, and then he feels so bad about what he's done that he allows himself to be executed, right? Even though he is, at this point, Dr. Manhattan, basically, right? Like, he has, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, um, yeah. And I think that the stylistic change helps us to get into this sense that this is a this is a different mind than what we might be thinking of, right? I also think that they serve as signposts that these are different chapters. <laughs> I mean, that sounds silly, right? But, like, this isn't, these aren't the same people, right? When you pick up chapter two and you have this, like it, it clarifies that these are these are different things. They're not all going to be connected to our Charles narrative, right? So it's like it's like when you have your flashbacks in black and white in your movie. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I think I think those are the reasons. It's fun. It gives us a better way to read into these people's minds across these different points in history, and it also signposts more clearly which chapters are Charles and which ones aren't. Those are my answers. I'm sticking to them. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anything anything to add martin or <laughs> yeah i would say that they you know it, it really the the um the even number chapters that take us to all these different points in the timeline also uh carry forward the the central theme of the book i really do see you know in, in each one you have such a specific voice such a specific point of view on the world um you know with robert's incredible range like he does this very effective uh, you know, voice of the of the late 19th century, which was just a time of, you know, like terrible inflated purple prose, <laughs> you know, like a lot of you just like <laughs> yeah. incredibly indulgent. I mean, like I'm a big William Jennings Bryan fan and he represents, you know, like some of the worst rhetorical excesses in some ways, <laughs> you know, that period, which, which were shared, you know, on both sides of the ocean. There's a reason that, you know, we're not really reading people from that immediate um, period and why, you know, the American Renaissance happens in the mid 19th century and then in the 1920s, skipping over, you know, quite a lot that's, I think, like represented in obliquely and, you know, like this, like super indulgent, inflated, you know, like style for the Baedeker chapter. But anyway, um, there are, you know, for each of these chapters, there are, you know, there's such a specific voice, such a specific window that's opened on the world and a set of limitations um, and that's, you know, like basically like the playground for, um, you know, the manifestation of the thing itself, the ways in which like he's able to apply pressure to each of those points of view, um, you know, in the, 19, in the uh, 1900 chapter, you know, just like can't be accommodated, you know, it has a traumatic character. Chapter four with the Molly Bloom chapter, we have, you know, at the end of Ulysses, this section where after all of the preceding, you know, like tumult and action, you have this um, pure moment of affirmation, Bloom 
um, you know, Molly Bloom said, you know, concludes the book with the word yes. And that's a choice on the part of Joyce to, um, you know, end on the most affirmative word in the English language. And there's a, you know, this sort of um, uh, way in which it, it's, you know, Ulysses is the, in some ways like the, you know, the, in terms of at least fiction, the capstone of the high modernist, high literary modernist project, um, which involved, you know, taking like, uh, you know, 20 centuries of art and, you know, like a, a globe full of languages and putting all of those in the service of a unifying um, artistic project. Like that was part of the spirit of literary modernism, I think, was like, you know, like we have all of this available to us in a way that is unlike how we've ever had it before, a kind of new new possibilities, which is which is why Joyce's final book, Finnegan's Wake, you know, there, I think there's something like 70 different language or languages represented. It's really essential to the project, you know, like this incredible bringing together of all of these things. And still that project is one that, you know, was succeeded by others. There's, um, you know, like it wasn't an ending place or ultimately a capstone. And there's a way in which that, you know, the thing itself can still exert pressure on that point of view. And of course it becomes even more clear in some ways with the later chapters, like the, you know, the latest chapter in the timeline, which is the fan soch for, um, old-fashioned diseases where, you know, we have numbered propositions just like in, you know, Wittgenstein's almost claustrophobic Tractatus Logical Philosophicus right. almost and other, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like that sort of, you know, like the numbered sequence where, where all problems have been resolved. And there is a way in which it actually resembles, you know, like Wittgenstein's vision, like, you know, like, you know, when we have a perfect grammar, all philosophical problems will be resolved. What's the greatest philosophical problem according to Camus? It's the question of whether to kill yourself. <laughs> and, right. you know, like in this, in this utopia where all of our, you know, like, physical needs are being met um you know like the last sort of like horizon for human action would be something that goes against you know like the one value that they are not allowed to um you know sort of step outside of except under extremely specific parameters which is that of human empathy and you know we have a character who you know essentially exceeds like the social programming of her time uh, unanticipated by the authorities, which have a minority report style, you know, like level of social awareness and right. dominance and kills this person who's, you know, basically induced sociopathy in herself in order to succeed in this like sort of, you know, play acting world of business. Capitalist <laughs> which, LARP. Capitalist yeah, LARP. it's, it's <laughs> incredible. It it's incredible. But so, you know, the way in which each of, in each of these paradigms, there's a way in which, you know, the thing itself is pushing against, um, you know, like the the limits of human construal in that given time. And so it carries forward, like the idea that there's no, um, you know, which is, I think, essential to the theme, that there's no sort of final word on human being. There's a way in which there's no, you know, sense of like, you know, final arrival for human nature or our last limits. Um, you know, there's kind of always going to be stuff that's not representable, that's not, um, you know, capturable within our conceptual schemata that will always, you know, be sort of um, latently aware of and which will, you know, sort of put pressure on our minds and which drives the engines of, you know, of thought forward and reflection and, and um, you know, has a kind of like revolutionary capacity for us. Um, so in a way it's, yeah, it's like these are settings for like rearticulations of that essential theme, I think, which I hope that we uh, still have time to get into the sort of theology of this book, which is the, the sort of last um, place at which this is really explored, which I find very interesting. Okay, so I do want to get to the theology thing, and I think that would be a good place, if not to end, to definitely you know <laughs> create enough time for. But before we move on, 
I want to just touch on the Joyce idea because um, I think it's related to what you guys are both saying about in the importance of the style of each section and how it's carrying on some of the central ideas of the text. I think basically, I you know, you could you could boil it down to like style as content, right? The very basic ideas of close reading that you use short, terse diction, you create a tone. Tone is part of the content of what you're reading and not just sort of, you know, the verbiage of what you're reading. And I think so that I think the idea of like style as content, style as constituent of content is really important in Joyce. And I think he's he is the high water mark of making the writing itself sort of the site of conflict. So like in every book, you know, there's a there's there's like the classic thing is there's two plots, right? You want to get from A to B. How do you get there? Or there's A versus B, who wins the contest? And I think he takes those basic ideas of conflict and he tries to play it out in Ulysses on the level of the text. So you have these different styles which are bumping against each other and you have these different ways of relieving the tension of the styles. And I think I bring that all up because, you know, when I first read this, um, the pastiches definitely justify themselves. I wrote a big note at one point that says like, excellence justifies whatever you want to do, right? <laughs> if you do it well enough, I'm in, I'm good. Like the Molly Bloom chapter, but also the other chapters, especially the Thomas chapter from the late 17th century kind of, you know, style, I, they're good enough that I just was happy to read them in and of themselves. But I do think there's like a larger Joycean project going on that's not just the Molly Bloom chapter. And I think it is the way these styles inform and bump against each other and kind of create various tensions that are relieved often by the Charles chapters, right? You have these intense, you know, you said earlier claustrophobic Wittgenstein stuff, but you have these in, this intense like claustrophobia, especially in the Thomas chapter, that then you pull out of and you have the kind of relief of the modern Charles perspective, who's talking about the Matrix and so forth. Um, but you even have one other like Joycean move where as much as the chapter that's done in dialogue, clearly about Plato, right? Dialogue in four parts, obviously a Plato reference, um, the she Peta console later even talks about, you know, oh, Charles, I heard you have such lovely conversations with my counterpart, philosophical conversations. But also like there is a really important chapter in Ulysses, I think it's Circe, it's not an official chapter, because, but it's like the schematic that <laughs> Joyce laid on it, laid over it in retrospect, where um, the plot basically like, it like breaks out of its stylistic confines. It's been so controlled by all of these like very rigid experiments. And then all of a sudden the action breaks into the into a play where it's dialogue unmediated, it's action unmediated, and like all these elements of normal fiction kind of break loose. And I, I do think that like the almost annoying intelligence of Roberts is that like he manages to make this really profound, like implicit statement about Joyce while he's also making a really profound explicit statement about Kant. Um, and I just, I can't think of another novel, especially a sci-fi novel that would be that ambitious on literary terms. Um, and I guess, yeah, I just wanted to fit that in there because it, it like, especially in my reread, I, I found it a little mind blowing just how ambitious he is in so many directions. We've talked a lot about what the Joyce chapter is like. I thought I would go ahead and just read part of it because if you're like me and have neither read nor studied Joyce, it might be useful to have a coherent example of what we mean. So this is how that chapter starts. 
Yes, I said yes, and Pedro sang in my ears, and my eyes said I will, and the whole of the mountain grew swollen and ripe and riper again, and the stars were all overhead. It should be possible, Albie said, his voice so English and solemn and refined like a king, possible to know if those lights in the night are worlds, and worlds inhabited by intelligences not unlike ours. And I put my moon mouth O over his sun mouth O, and kissed him, and the night scratchy with cicadas all saying yes, and I saying yes, and he making my name into a heavenly body, Lunita, Lunita, over and over, and the sandy soil still warm from the day. And it keeps going on from there. But I thought it's it's one thing to talk about stream of consciousness, Joyce, another thing to actually read it. And so that's what that whole chapter is like. There's no paragraph, there's no punctuation, I believe literally at all. That was perfect. Okay. Anything else to add about that? Or do you guys want to move on to maybe like the, the idea of theology? Well, so we definitely want to do theology. I agree that maybe we should end with theology. I think if we're going to make criticisms of the book, we should do it not at the end of the book. Uh, not at the end of the podcast. Okay. I mean, the sort of this, was it the sandwich theory? You know, good thing, criticism, good thing. Uh, and I at least, I mean, I like. I think the book is great. Uh, I do want to bitch about chapter three a bit. Yeah, chapter three is certainly for me, when I was doing my reread this week, um, it's the point at which, you know, I'm a little bit sleep deprived. My kids are sick, whatever. Um, but it was the point, the one time reading this book back through that I actually dropped it on the ground because I, I nodded off. And it is because the the narrative kind of goes slack and there's a little bit too much exposition of Kant and too much that's unnecessary in the exposition of Kant, I think, in chapter three, especially when, you know, they're sort of belaboring the idea of the categories and the thing in itself at the Institute. Um, and he's sort of like getting his bearings there. There are just, a, you know, a lot of pages that are dedicated to that. And, and to me, it just felt like um, some of it was a little bit repetitive and, um, yeah, just a little bit of the momentum and the spark was kind of lost as, you know, there's a little bit too much um, place setting happening for, you know, kind of the philosophy, which I think he'd actually, like, he was already in position to really just dole out what was necessary. And he does, but he just, um, he goes over it in a little bit too much uh, sort of momentum slowing, um, you know, thoroughness in, in some of those sections, I think. I, I agree. I think the big problems with chapter three, first of all, that's the hardest part to write, I think, arguably, right? Yeah, Because he's, he, he's had your initial, you know, prologue explosions, you know, I mean, the big, exciting, fun thing you do at the beginning of the movie, right? And then you have part two where he's trying to introduce you to the way the form of the thing is going to be, right? Which is also a pretty exciting chapter, right? They're walking around Frankfurt and they keep seeing Cthulhu, right? Like that's, that's pretty, it's pretty easy to know why that's interesting. <laughs> and then in chapter three, he's got to, you know give you enough exposition to understand the mechanics of what he's doing, right? Because you have to not only understand Kant, you have to understand the second main premise of his book, which is what if AI can sneak past the categories, right? Right. And he's also got to help you to understand who Charles is and why he's doing stuff. So that's the hardest chapter, right? I want to be clear about that. That's always hard to write. I, I, I say that like I've written any novels. I haven't. But it appears to be the case <laughs> that that sort of thing is always the hardest to write, right? The exposition, the world building. The putting the pieces on the table. So I'm not sure there's a way to write this chapter in a way that sets the rest up that isn't going to occasionally make you be like, yes, I get it. You know what I mean? That said, I don't know if we needed 20 pages dedicated to how much Charles is an incel, uh, <laughs> right. uh, which he actually literally uses the word involuntarily celibate, which I'd have to check the timeline on whether that was in the popular consciousness. I, I do think it predates the but, sort of incel discourse that you're referring to. I yeah. think so. <laughs> but I thought that was funny. Um, but, you know, and there's also okay. So Charles is, you know, he's 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 come back from Antarctica as 
Uh, he's having hallucinations. He's becoming an alcoholic. He's lost three fingers and several toes and most of his nose. You know, so he's having a rough time. And one way he sort of parses what's happened to him is he becomes very sad about the fact that he has a hard time getting laid, right? Which is, is not a bad choice for the character to make. I'm not saying that, right? But we spend a lot of time on this. And on one hand, it makes sense because one thing he's doing a lot in these early chapters is giving you other metaphors for the categories, right? He spends, I think there's at least four in chapter two that he's pretty explicit about, right? Other ways of thinking about how we're wearing space-time contact lenses, right? Uh, in chapter two, they talk about the Trojan horse, the Trojans only being able to see the horse as a symbol of victory because they think they've won. You know, they talk about the Germans maybe not being able to parse Albie and Harold as a gay couple because they just don't have the sort of grammar for that. You know what I mean? Uh, and so one thing I think he's doing with that is he's showing us how Charles at this point is perceiving everything through the lens of sort of sex and the fact that he doesn't get any, right? That said, it's A, kind of boring, uh, <laughs> and B, it, it's just there's way too much of it in that chapter, right? So the way they kind of lure him to the Institute is with this, you know, hot chick who shows up at his door and is trying to sort of seduce him sort of right kind of clumsily and there's some interesting stuff there where she's clearly not very committed to the bit uh, <laughs> uh for wash various your reasons hands, i have to yeah. see it <laughs> yeah wash your hands i have to watch you wash your hands we're gonna you know nothing on the mouth you know and, and uh so that's kind of funny i'm not saying that it should all have been cut but there's way too much of it that tangled up with the exposition exactly like you said martin i mean he tells us the same things about kant he's already told us about four more times in that chapter yep um and it just drags, and I think that parts of the Charles Gardner uh, narration, again, he's having a little too much fun, he's being a little too cute, he wants to drop too many pop culture references in, and it just comes off as kind of obnoxious. Uh, and then I think he mostly gets over it by chapter three, so I think the rest of the Charles chapters are all very, very good. Uh, I agree, Joel, I think you said earlier you actually think chapter one is a little worse. Um, I agree that he's still got some troubles with that one, too. But I think once he gets over it in chapter three, everything else we have after that is pretty good. But I think that's, A, worth mentioning in case you do want to pick up this book, because I think there's a bit of a hump. It's about a 56-page chapter, and I do honestly think it's it's kind of a slog. And also to say that, you know, uh, even Adam Roberts, who is clearly an incredible writer here, I think can occasionally miss, uh, <laughs> which is comforting, because I miss all the time when I try to write. <laughs> well, what's it, what's, I, think, I think you're probably right that, like, taking it in isolation, I think the third chapter might be the weakest. And I, I do agree that the third chapter has you know, a, a lot of work to do. I actually, I, I, you know, I agree that the repetition of the Kant stuff should have been cut, but I, I will say, I, I think the benefit of writing in the sci-fi genre is that world building is just baked into the literary form, right? So you have mm -hmm. to explain things. You have to explain how the world works. And I, and I think that that's one of the beauties of this novel is, um, how often the Kant stuff is seamless. And so I actually think when it sticks out, it sticks out because the rest of the time he's just telling you about this, you know, 18th century philosopher or whatever that you're kind of accepting as part of the AI experiment Institute that you're also reading about. Um, but the reason that I said earlier that I thought chapter one was a little weaker, you know, I'm not sure that it is I mean, in isolation, but I think beginnings are very, very hard. I think that every writer has a rhythm, and at least for me, I think that's one of the one of the blockades. Whenever I begin a book, is I have to kind of slip into their language, you know, at some point. And that's maybe just my problem. Like I maybe I'm just sensitive to that as a writer. But with this one in particular, I do think he tries too hard at times to individualize. Charles and I think he does it in a way that's like almost cinematic and kind of in a thin way cinematic like he kind of tries to make Charles as every man 
who's also an astrophysicist PhD. And there's just these things that are kind of like a little intention, but the, that's all kind of what you said, Bill, like being maybe too cute at times. It's a little like the, the wiring is showing. But my two big complaints, since we're, we're doing that, since obviously this book is brilliant. I feel like it's only fair that we point out our nitpicks because it's really a great, great book. But um, the two nitpicks I have are actually one is characterization. And actually it's Roy. I think that he should have established who Roy was much more fully. Later in the book, when Charles talks about, I knew who Roy was before he was crazy, before he was, you know, supernatural Hannibal Lecter. I I didn't, I, on both read-throughs, I don't feel like I have a good sense of who Roy is beyond caricature, right? He's kind of a snob, he's kind of weird, but there's not something that's clear about him. And that's almost like an intuitive thing. And I would contrast it with some of the other chapters, such as the Thomas chapter, where he, you know, he is being systematically abused by um, the judge, James Newbolt, I think. And James Newbolt has a more distinctive imprint, in my opinion, than Roy does until much later in the book. I, I think that's a mistake. The second thing is actually the mechanism of the letter. Like, so in the beginning, right, um, Roy doesn't get any you know, letters and Charles offers to sell him a letter and it kind of starts the whole book because he sells him without knowing it, a letter from his girlfriend who's written a dear John letter breaking up with him. That all makes sense. But the, it's just like, I think the puppet strings are showing a little too much as far as, you know, why Charles cares so much and why Roy torments him so much. I think there was a really easy way to smooth out some of that plot, which was to make either like Charles know he was giving away a Dear John letter or to make him really, really worried that that was the next letter he was going to receive. And so it's really small stuff, but for me it stood out just because the beginning of the novel, it just sets up, you know, obviously it sets up everything. And, and I thought Roy in particular needed to be a little more concrete as a as a character before we kind of had him recur as this nightmare villain with all that said though is that honestly his nightmare villain stuff was great i mean pulled it off you know like the deficits were totally paved over by the time we got going yeah anything else you guys want to add little criticisms to, to make adam <laughs> guess, roberts hate us i guess i just want to generally say i think this is i'm trying to i'm struggling to find a good word for it because i read a lot of sci-fi or horror where you have a main character who's supposed to be sort of an everyman right uh, who the narration feels a lot like this, right? I'm thinking particularly of like, um, I'm reading, I'm halfway through it right now, but Victor Laval's Big Machine actually has some things uh. in common with it. They both, we both have a guy who is kind of an addict and a screw up who ends up going to a mysterious institution he doesn't understand and getting involved in supernatural. There's some, there's some parallels here. Uh, such that I actually had to stop reading Big Machine when I was rereading this. <laughs> They're actually very different books in every other way, but there was just enough that I was going to end up uh, tripping over something. Um, where you, you they, they, they want to have a character who is, you know, not a bad right? Uh, uh, and right. Is, the, is the first person writer and who is going to have a little bit of a sense of humor about things because they don't want to get melodramatic and they just end up all sounding exactly the same all of these all of these characters right and I don't know how to fix this because you don't want the character to be too strong a presence or it overwhelms the plot right this guy is partly there right. as an audience surrogate to learn about the world building right mm -hmm. but at the same time like you don't end up having a great strong feeling about who Charles is as a character here I think frankly even at the end even though you know, Roberts clearly knows how to do it. I have a very strong feeling about the characters in the fansoch story, which is like 10 pages long, you know? Um, and so I think right. this is kind of a hazard of the form, and I don't know how to solve it. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think, also I want mean, to be clear about that. 
Yeah, you probably couldn't solve it. In the first chapter, I I do think, weirdly enough, related to the the Kantian stuff in the third chapter, um, I do think it's a it's a balance of information, and you can never get it quite right. Everyone has different tastes. There are some people out there who will probably really appreciate the repeated, you know, Kantian explanations, right? Because it's not sinking in. Who's Kant? Why is this happening? And so there is a way in which, yeah, you just can't please everyone. But I think the the, the dispersal of information, the distribution of information, um, as far as who people are, as far as plot, as far as exposition, it is one of the harder things to balance. Um, but I do think in the first chapter especially, which sounds crazy because he's clearly like a genius of sentence-level writing in a certain sense, if only because of the pastiches. But I, for me, it was line editing. I feel like I just there was stuff I could have taken out that would have helped the cuteness and also would have, like, if you tell someone too much, you make them ask questions that aren't relevant, and then you're distracted mm. from what is relevant. And I think that happened just a few too many times in both chapters. Um, but that is pretty nitpicky because, again, like I, I mean, I think actually an interaction on Twitter, Martin, you and I kind of talked about, like, like his pastiche work is like basically the sign of a genius. <laughs> yeah. So you know, no, yeah, that yeah, that's the caveat. <laughs> yeah, I do want to. Yeah, I do want to say, um, on that note, yeah, I, I I think that that's true. Like someone who's as effective at a kind of you know line level mimicry of such a, an array of genres from different historical periods. Um, I think again, one of my favorite books. The Pound Era by Hugh Kenner. Um, you know, he basically is doing something kind of similar where each of the subjects that he takes up in the successive chapters of that book, he ends up writing, um, you know, essentially an homage. Like, you know, it, it opens with, uh, you know, essentially um, a riff on Joyce's relationship to Henry James. And it's very Jamesian in terms of the sort of complicated syntax in these compound sentences that go on sometimes for paragraphs and that deliver just like these really delicate little crystalline insights. Um, it's just magnificent and it changes chapter to chapter. And that's, you know, like that's just the sign of a person who's read on almost unfathomable amount <laughs> and who yeah. really is in command of all of that that they've taken in. And that was certainly true of Kenner who, you know, like the opening chapter, I know people who have memorized, you know, like passages from that opening section. And it's a work of literary criticism that's taught in grad programs today. This is not like, you know, like a trade paperback. <laughs> like, right, right. like, you know, people are really doing, you know, like sort of uh, detailed exposition of that book when they encounter it normally. But then others are just, you know, just for the sheer joy of the language. And similarly with Roberts, like he just, there's a kind of exuberance, a kind of just, you know, like love of his, you know, many, um, you know, points of reference, which for him are not points of reference. They're, they're, you know, sort of living voices that he is able to evoke and to channel in the, um, in the, uh, yeah, in the uh, even number chapters where he's, you know, bouncing all around, you know, like a, a very capacious intellectual universe. Um, and it's that, you know, that's the horizon against which like the figures of these, you know, basically like, as you said, Joel, like nitpicks are, are being set <laughs> because I agree with you. Like, you know, Roy's um, sort of progression uh, mentally and spiritually become a kind of like religious fanatic by the end, obsessed with, you know, like the purity of God and the inviolability of God. And, you know, Peta is this demonic figure. 
all of that has happened basically privately and it comes as a surprise at the end like this um you know incredibly gifted programmer in the arctic who did something that's not actually possible for the hardware that he was using for that person to then have come around to you know essentially being on a you know a kind of personal crusade um to destroy what he sees as a you know a demonic figure like that's that that all happens off stage and we have very few actual sightings of this figure and that's you know like that's true and it is as you said you know like there's a kind of balance of information that um is impossible to achieve really in a you know sort of full form but um yeah there are like little things like that where um there are like little moments of dissatisfaction i guess but that's partly because we're being pulled along through so much of this book and our expectations end up being so large um because he's operating at such an incredible intellectual scale and also um, you know, literary scale with all these different eras and um, voices and periods that he's um, truly invoking. <laughs> and um, and also, yeah, like these, uh, like these, the little dramas of all these characters, and especially in the even number chapters, you know, like the ripple effect of the thing itself moving through time, um, like those are the ones that end up being most plaintive. Um, you know, like the incredible, incredibly uh, um, affecting moments, like, uh, of course, like the very difficult chapter to read about this, like 17th century, um, you know, like, uh, abuse scenario, but then, of course, also the, you know, like the murder that happens at the end of the, um, you know, Fansos chapter, or the, you know, like the last, the last three days of the time war, where, you know, she falls in love with a ghost who, whose form is attenuated, um, every time, you know, like he encounters uh, part of the timeline that's uh, flooded with decisions, <laughs> which is an incredible conceit all itself. You know, it really is like like the like the the number of ideas that, you know, power the narratives in this book and the uses to which they're put in the, you know, the lives of these characters is really remarkable. And really it's in. Yeah, I think as we've established fairly well, like the real emotional punches seem to happen in the, you know, in the short game. Although I did feel more attached to the character of Charles than I think. Um, the two of you did, but um. well, I th I think in the end I did, and I, and I have two I have two things before we get to the theology stuff, which I we're definitely going to get to, I promise. But one <laughs> one was you said you said it, Martin. You, you kind of triggered it in my head. The words I've been looking for, which is that this book is about love. It's a romantic kind of addition or rejoinder to a lot of Kantian ideas. But I think it is it is truly. A work of love and i i don't like you know it's the authorial intention fallacy or whatever to, to kind of project that onto roberts but i agree with you that his you know his invocation of these various voices and of kant himself i come away from the book both times i've read it wanting to read what he is you know embodying or referencing and that's that's almost like the work of a great teacher right that's someone who has such enthusiasm for their subject you know, they, they, they give that to you. They transfer it to you by their mere exuberance. And I do think this book does the same thing where not only do I want to read Kant, which is a feeling that I got to tell you, I have not had in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it, makes me, it makes me a weak, it makes me a weak person maybe. But, um, but not only do I want to read Kant, I mean, I'll read it, I'll read it again at some point, but I, I want to go back and I want to read Ulysses. I want, you know, I, I want to actually dive deeper into these things that he himself loves and that he represents so lovingly, um, mm -hmm. which I really appreciate. It's just a wonder. And then I, the second thing is actually kind of for you, Bill, because we mentioned all of the, um, all of the high 
concept ideas he manages to fit into what a 360 page book right yeah. like they're like each of these each of these uh, even chapters which are you know the world of the thing itself they are <laughs> they are more packed with ideas than most novels literary or sci-fi or otherwise that you'll come across but it reminded me of especially because the fermi paradox issue I, it reminded me a little bit of the three body trilogy in its ambition but i, I think this book is both more ambitious and maybe accomplishes more in a shorter space. And I was curious, Bill, like, you know, I've talked about it a little bit, if you agreed with that or what you would add to that. No, I actually really want to talk a bit about, I have it in my notes, I want to talk about the connection between this and Chishin Liu's uh, Remembrance of Earth's Past trilogy, which no one calls it that. Uh, the three-body problem, yeah. the Dark Forest, and Death's End. Partly because I read both the Dark Forest and this this year, so I've read now two books that try to solve the Fermi Paradox, which I think is right. Uh, Adam Roberts pr- proposed a solution to the Fermi paradox, which uh, the Fermi paradox is based on. Let's see if I can get this right. Ooh, can I just wing this? I think so. The Fermi paradox is based on you know how much space there is. There really ought to be intelligent life out there, right? It would be weird if this was the only planet where that happened. And given that there's been so much time since the Big Bang, some of it should have developed interplanetary travel and been able to send out communications. And yet, we don't see any of that. Right. That's basically the Fermi paradox. Right. Uh, Is there really should be intelligent life that we should have sign of and there isn't. So Adam Roberts solution to that here is, well, maybe there's intelligent life, but it wouldn't have brains structured the way ours are. So we wouldn't even be able to perceive them properly, let alone communicate with them. Right. Like they may not perceive space time at all, say, (laughs) or certainly not the way we do (laughs) because they would have different you know, Kantian structures, right? Which is a much wilder solution than Chishin Liu's solution, which is what if the entire universe is in a very elaborate sort of prisoner's dilemma such that every gal- every galactic civilization hides lest it be destroyed by the others because of game theory logic, which I'm making a little <laughs> bit of fun of here. It's actually an interesting idea. Uh, at the same time, any solution to a problem which is like, well, if you just look at game theory, I just get like Eric Garland vibes. Does that make sense? That's not fair. <laughs> yeah. Twitter, Twitter deep cut. Yeah. <laughs> he's really, dis- a really smart he's guy. just That's destroyed the reputation of that whole field single-handedly. Yeah. Is he still, sorry, is he still tweeting? Is he, he still like a he presence? Did. He said something really dumb the other day. I can't remember what it was, but I was like, it was like like getting a, a new single from a childhood band. You know what I mean? Like, ah, oh, <laughs> I don't listen to Reliant K anymore, but I'm glad they're still right. out there. Similarly, like, ah, yeah, oh, I'm glad they're still out there. He's still tweeting. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, and, but I think also there's some other connections between the three-body problem connection and this. It's not just the Fermi paradox. One thing is they're dealing with a million ideas. I mean, Chishin Liu will deal with, I want to say, 15 novel-length sci-fi ideas every chapter, roughly. <laughs> um, I think Joel and I have talked about this last year on our Year in 2020, uh, in Year in Reading 2020 podcast, but... Like, Chishin Liu briefly is like, hey, so anyway, while they're building this multidimensional device, they meet these little critters that are from the multidimensional universe, and they try to fight them, and they win. And anyway, back to the rest of that. I didn't have to do that at all. <laughs> it's and it's much more interesting than that. Uh, but there's, there's a bit in the beginning of the Dark Forest when there is a sort of a bit of like fourth or fifth dimensional space intersects with Earth, which briefly grants a woman the ability to basically walk through walls and manipulate time and space and she pulls a dude's brain out without you know cutting his head and such which is is weirdly similar to some of the stuff that happens in this book right Mm -hmm. like because Peta bounces through thomas he can basically do the same thing right he describes reaching in and crushing someone's windpipe without moving his hands right um and there's a few other sort of bizarre connections there which i 
Chishin Lu's books in Chinese predate the thing itself, but they were published in English about the same time this book came out. So I'm not sure what was in the water, uh, I guess, that was simultaneously in Cambridge and, and wherever in China Chishin Lu was from. But I do think there are a lot of, pardon me, I do think there are a lot of connections between the two books. I will say that I like the thing itself a lot more, which may just partly be because it's more same. the sort of project I'm interested in. Um, I'm not sure if that's necessarily an objective statement. Does that make sense? But uh, uh, it, it was funny to read them both in the same year. That's that's certainly true. You know, it all this on this read through. I didn't think of this at all the first time, but on this read through, I actually realized that in some very direct ways, this is the like adult wrinkle in time. Like where a certain like philosophical concept enables you to do magic and travel yeah. through space and time. <laughs> that's literally the plot of a wrinkle in time. Is like we, we're never given the mechanisms for how um, the O'Keefe family, or no, it's, it's the other family, um, how Meg's father he travels through different worlds, and we're never told. Yeah, it's just he has he he understands the idea of a tesseract, and then he goes. And this one's a little different, you know, because they, they in the end they tell you that. Roy is actually using PETA, the console he has, to enact these, you know, magnificent displays of power. But it was very similar of like, hey, if you have the right idea, you too can literally walk on water. <laughs> which is a very spiritual idea, of course, which would lead us finally, inevitably. Bam! To Look at that! <laughs> <laughs> That's right! <laughs> to the, to the, it leads us to the theology of this book. In this book, in the end note, as he cites himself, is written by an atheist, but I have to kind of you know throw it to well, you first. Do, do the Martin. whole quote. Or, do the whole quote. Don't just say that. Read the whole quote. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in the end note, Adam Roberts even takes time to say, as an atheist writing a novel about why you should believe in God, I have taken more than I can say from the eloquent and persuasive devotional writing of my friends Alan Jacobs and Francis Spufford, Christians both. Which, by the way, gets us our Spufford comment. It's a Spufford <laughs> reference. We have to have one. I don't, you, have to have. I don't know if you know this, Martin, but Francis Spufford is the patron saint of this podcast. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so. That's um, funny. Thanks, Phil. That was a good reminder. So, okay. So, yeah. So, he, he, he says it himself. He's an atheist who wrote a book about why you should believe in God. But I, I do kind of want to – you mentioned it earlier, Martin, and I'm, I'm curious for whatever thoughts you have on what the theology of this book is and how – I don't know how how urgent or immediate its points are and maybe your own reaction. Oh, man. Great questions. Um, gosh. Uh, going back to Kant, you know, the style of atheism with which we, you know, sort of have the most to do today um, is really kind of a hyper-realization of certain Enlightenment ideals. You know, it's Steven Pinker talking about, like, you know, recovering the legacy of the Enlightenment for today and all this stuff. Right. Spufford writes pretty eloquently, actually, in um, his book Unapologetic about just the insufficiency of that moral vision represented by the kind of myopic, you know, like um, new atheism, I guess you would call it, and sort of related phenomena. How really it does kind of privilege this, um, you know, a point of view on the world that's um, possible for people in like the social and class position of someone like Richard Dawkins, um, who, you know, doesn't have real problems and can basically say, you know, like, yeah, let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Um, who's insulated from a lot of, uh, the exigencies of life, which make it such a tragic situation. 
And Roberts, the great writer that he is, is very much alive to those things, as he demonstrates, you know, time and again in this book, um, which delivers so many different kinds of emotional punches, it really kind of can leave you battered, <laughs> which I think was something that characterized my experience reading this the first time at this point, like five years ago, I think. Um, it really, like, and this is what's so interesting to me about Charles as the, you know, the narrator of the odd-numbered chapters and, like, the protagonist that the book, um, you know, sticks closest to. He, because of his disfigurement, is really um, alienated in the first place from, you know, like, the kind of uh, perfectly abled, independent reasoner that, you know, embodies sort of, like, the Enlightenment vision for moral life. Um, so he's kind of like at grips, um, you know, from the beginning, of course, with things that exceed, you know, like his ability to grasp, um, because he's at grips with the thing itself. And he's also, you know, like he's a scarred and battered, um, person, but, you know, being scarred and battered is kind of part of, you know, like the condition of human life, which, um, you know, it's only in our limitation in which things, you know, in which it's possible for things to actually be given, you know, the condition of the possibility of, you know, like comprehension or, you know, in very human terms of an embrace is a fundamental separateness. So getting back to that sense of alienation and sort of, you know, in some ways it's related to kind of the tragic sense of life, I think, um, you know, it puts us in a very different sort of tonal register than the triumphalist, you know, uh, like, like hypernaturalists who, you know, declaim right. a lot about these sorts of problems. And, um, you know, really, it it's also represents a kind of honesty in the face of insoluble problems for reason. Um, there is, uh, you know, the, the human capacity, as was even, you know, like um, being demonstrated, I think, even by some of Kant's contemporaries. I think of um, Johann Georg Hamann, um, you know, a great sort of like counter-enlightenment thinker in some ways, a contemporary of Kant's who wrote these incredibly densely elusive letters that he would circulate among his friends that would basically just make fun of Kant and Kant's critiques and talk about how the real... <laughs> I, I never heard of that. That sounds amazing. Yeah, he's a very interesting sort of footnote in philosophical history. But so he, you know, basically would like subject to ridicule and like, you know, use these like incredibly um, complicated and difficult illusions. I have him in a couple of different anthologies of Enlightenment thought. And um, in some cases, the end notes, you know, exceed like the um, number of pages actually dedicated to the text of the letter that they're accompanying. <laughs> um, but so he, you know, he says like the real mystery is language. So he anticipates, you know, like um, the problems that dominate uh, philosophy in the 20th century. Um, you know, he anticipates them from a remove of, you know, like 120, 140 years or whatever. But so the, you know, the insufficiencies of reason were, you know, fairly clearly known, you know, even at that time, I think that Kant understood that like history was the horizon of his own project. And that's where you have the transition to later thinkers such as Hegel in the sort of romantic period who, you know, thought in terms of reason coming to self-awareness in the context of human history, something that isn't just abstract and isn't, you know, about the you know, the pure character or quality of reason in isolation, but really that um, looks at it in the context of the world and sort of like emergent properties. Like there's a kind of incompleteness and um, inability to grapple with the whole of life. Um, not so much in Hegel, but of course, I think in later thinkers. Um, and uh, yeah, sort of honesty about the limitations of reason and um, rationality and rationalism, most importantly. So... Um, you have this kind of, uh, you know, like 
grappling with these limitations and it's through invoking you know this philosophical concept that becomes this fictional conceit of the thing itself and that is you know this sort of uh, ground of being in existence and already we're talking in theological terms when we get to that point mm-hmm. um you know capital b being is a you know essentially a theological concept the great um 20th century philosophical work being in time by martin heidegger um, began as an investigation of the conditions of consciousness of the uh, early church, this sort of apocalyptic mentality. Like that's this sort of like seed form of that project, which became you know this great um, monument within the ph- phenomenological tradition, and you know an attempted return to you know a fresh sight of you know like the energies of being as experienced by the ancient Greek philosophers, which you know had been occluded for moderns by the interposition of all of our you know concepts and obfuscations anyway the thing itself you know in this book is used as the kind of you know bedrock reality and it's um you know as comes up time and again there's a kind of potency here it's not just inert it's not lifeless it has a charge it has a kind of life and because of its relationship to human perception and the fact that you know um it would not be possible for us to have any experiences without the sort of underlying reality that sort of feeds the conceptual apparatus and, you know, produces appearances and objects and things. Um, there's a way in which it's, you know, Roberts considers, or I should say, you know, Charles comes to see it as being um, in a sense, positively disposed towards human beings. And of course he has the beatific vision at the end with this character of Peta. And so the interesting thing to me, I guess, when it comes to the actual nuts and bolts of the theology, like that's all very high level conceptual and abstract. Peta is kind of like the figure upon which this whole theological edifice sort of um, turns. And, you know, he appears in all these different chapters, like in the, you know, the the Joycean um, chapter of affirmation, you know, like he appears as Pedro to the woman who is the mother of, you know, Molly Bloom. And, you know, um, he appears in chapter six, uh, you know, like he appears to um, Thomas and, um you know, even to Kant at the end is put in mind of St. Peter. And of course, that's the reference, I think, that um, Roberts is going for, like this artificial intelligence that actually in the end turns out to have been a linkage to a different kind of being, like not just a computer program. Right. Um, you know, he's evoking, you know, like the idea of, of Peter, you know, like the one, the rock on whom I will build my church. But then also, of course, in chapter six, you have the judge talking about, you know, like Satan, Lucifer, this figure of light, which is, you know, when we meet Peta at the end in, you know, the beatific vision that Charles has, it's in this sort of dome of, you know, like endlessly refracting light. And there is a way in which this dazzling figure still has a kind of demonic aspect. But what Roberts does, I think, is sort of turn on its head, you know, like theology that the judge in chapter six would have. And this relates to the like core theme of the thing itself being this repository of like human potential and energy and just like, unexpressed vitality in all these different ages that's limited by the sort of like um, conceptual uh, paradigm or the moral paradigm in each of these different eras. Um, You know, the limitations that are essentially self-imposed that deny some essentially human quality. And Mm -hmm. of course, in the context of, you know, like rigid revealed religion, especially in a time when, you know, that uh, had a really important shaping role in society, um, you know, like those other energies, um, like, you know, even, I don't know, something like homosexuality, you know, essentially um, targeted for a kind of uh, social oppression and, um, you know, suppression. Um, 
in order to uh, you know keep you know maintain this sort of like public morality. And there's a way in which you know like Peter is a kind of ambiguous figure for having this like kind of Luciferian aspect, but at the same time, like what is it that he sort of portends? It's the unlocking of that potential in these different eras for people who have been kind of um, under you know various boot heels of different kinds, even if it's only you know like the internalized sort of expectations or fears or anxieties or whatever else. Um, so there's, a, so, you know, he represents this kind of Luciferian figure and also kind of a demiurge, like the, you know, the thing itself as, you know, sort of being itself, you know, the ground of existence as this sort of font of divinity is really kind of, um, like, uh, the Neoplatonic philosopher Plotinus, his idea of the one that from which right. all of, you know, created existence is essentially an emanation from this, um, divine consciousness and it's not actually approachable it's not a personal god it's not um, you know a figure to which one can be related and um, you know the act of creation is mediated by a demiurge so Peter also plays this role you know sort of like constructing that reality like having um, more direct access to the thing itself gives Peter a sort of terrifying agency that you know, Roy is able to harness and use to manipulate physical reality. And that also in the different like stepping stones throughout the timeline, for instance, um, Thomas, you know, when they are sort of possessed by the spirit of PETA, they are um, given terrifying powers to, as you were saying before, Joel, you know, like the, to reach in and crush people's organs without actually lifting their hands, you know, the power of this like sort of telekinesis. Um, but anyway, all of this to say, essentially, uh, it's kind of a, a different kind of spirituality that it, that presents a direct challenge to I think like the the established religions that have had a larger shaping role in human history and kind of stands up for the sort of like the suppressed note you know like the the um, you know like the those who have never been able to um, bring their sort of full humanity to bear within their particular historical context like the thing itself really kind of you know in PETA's sort of dispensations of agency throughout history you know brings out those things in these different characters and so it's a sort of activation of human potential and the potential is grounded in this sort of superabundance of the thing itself which really relates to I think that yeah again the inexhaustibility of humanity of the human character and spirit how um, no particular historical instantiation of human nature will come to the end of human possibility. And that's my take on the theology of the thing itself. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Well, I think um, I, I don't want to invoke it specifically, but the way that you're talking about it, especially brought to mind basically liberation theology, right? That like mm -hmm. if love is this force, this personal force, that's the thing itself, is a personal force of love almost, um, which I'm not sure he quite uses that word personal, but he gets there basically, right? It's mm -hmm. active and, it, and that love is essential. Um, it is sort of this, this force that bends toward almost like, you know, in the famous phrase toward, you know, it's like, you know, the universe bends to an arc of justice or whatever it is, right? Like that there is this liberation element that transcends the oppressions of the specific religions. Mm -hmm. But also, I, I, what I also kept thinking, though, was when you were, you know, kind of laying it out, that it's almost like Roberts takes you, he does take you a step past Kant, potentially, right? Where like, it's not just theism that's landed on. It is a loving, active theism, right? That the element of love is an experience explicit category that PETA adds 
to Kant's own categories. Mm -hmm. And the last chapter, of course, talks about that, where you know Kant wonders if maybe he missed an important element of you know, of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> that repression was maybe not an essential element, but that love is. And um, and I, I do, th I, I kind of loved it because I, I think it's a really genuine engagement with the, you know, not only the two thinkers he references, Roberts, you know, Spufford and Jacobs, but it is this almost like, almost like an inverted, less specific Pascal's wager, right? Where he, at one point, Peter says, you have one of two possibilities. God is intimately interested in you or there is no God. And I like that because it, it, it was, it's like specific enough to be a challenge to either party, right? So if you don't believe in God, it's a challenge that's more robust. And if you do believe in God, it's a challenge that like, there's not a watered down version of this that you're gonna accept. I don't know, that, that's a little off topic, but I, I do think that Roberts, I, I found it profound, the degree to which he took seriously the question of God as a personal force of love, and that he would, as an atheist, make the strongest argument possible for believing in God, um, to take it out of the intellectual plane, I genuinely found it like pretty emotionally affecting. You mm -hmm. know, As someone who is a believer, it resonated on multiple levels. In Kant's last utterance, which actually, again, is Joycean, right, the repetition, mm -hmm. but also is himself replacing every category that he's made up with light, 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 that unbearably spiritual phenomenon, which is both a unity, white light, and a plurality or whatever. It's multiple colored and prisms. You know, it's it, like that one beautiful spiritual concept replaces the categories. I, I, I genuinely found it very, like, emotionally convincing, <laughs> You know, like, here, like basically, here's like an atheist convincing me of my faith. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and I think that's a really, really profound argument for his skill as a writer. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, sorry, I'll open up to you as well, Bill. I don't know what you took away theologically or even maybe I turned it to the emotional stuff, but I'm curious what you took away as well. I, I don't know as I have too much more to add. I think I would end up doing a lot of echoing. Uh, one thing I would say is I think we've talked a lot about Roberts is an omnivorous reader and, and a writer who can do a lot of things. One thing that I think is is also cool about this book is the way he really does treat the central premise very seriously. And I think that's where he ends, why he ends up where he does, right? Like, I, I don't know much about Robert's personal beliefs or whatever, but he describes himself still as an atheist, right? It's not like he says, and right. after writing this book, I quit being one. Like that, <laughs> yeah, I found, that would be, yeah, that I found would... <laughs> the Kantian God. Yeah, no, yeah, he doesn't, no, right? Uh, yeah. That's not what happens. So presumably one reason he ends up here is because he's really treating this idea very seriously, right? He says, well, if Kant's right, what else? Well, then you have to end up here, right? And I think that's one right. thing I, where, where I can really respect him as a science fiction author. Does that make sense? Um, uh, because that was the way I was always taught was like in sci-fi, you get one or two premises and then everything else should follow logically from those premises, right? Like you, you get one thing where you can tweak the world of reality and after everything after that should follow, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what you have here. You have, I guess, basically one premise with like a sub-premise. One, Kant's right. Two, computers can sneak past it, right? Uh, <laughs> and then uh, that's how you end up with everything else. And so he ends up writing this this uh, vision of the world that presumably he does not think is actually accurate, right? Uh, but he does so very compellingly and, and beautifully as a way of really investigating this idea, which I think is great. And it also connects him, of course, to apparently his buddy, Francis Spufford, who we always talk about as being able to really chase an idea down. That's one thing we always talk about him mm. on this podcast. Mm. So, um, you know, that's cool. They're friends. They should be our friends. That's my opinion. <laughs> I agree with you there. I just want to, uh, 
I, I wanted to say one other thing, which is, yeah, it has to do with like his entering so deeply into this idea and it has to do with his points of reference, which I don't think I brought up before. Um, at least I think three instances of the use of the phrase darkness visible, which of course comes from Milton and has to do with, you know, hell and the, you know, again, the in, sort of inversion of value, like the sort of like demonic figure of Peta, who is also, you know, really an angel of light, sort of a demiurge, you know, like this mediating presence that, um, you know, is benevolent, shows benevolence towards Charles at the end, gives him a kind of peace. Um, and then the other one is, uh, you know, repeated references to, and I, I wish I'd written this down so I could go and find these, but, um, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, the thing itself is being more, in a sense, intimate to you than your own jugular vein, um, yeah. which I think is like a restatement of an idea, actually, in Augustine, you know, who's we mentioned before is, you know, sort of evoked in the final chapter is the author of this book on galvanism and galvanic, you know, galvanic um, electricity. And, um, you know, Augustine, of course, uh, you know, putting Roberts right at the sort of like wellspring of um, so much Western theological reflection. And also Augustine, um, you know, the author of in some ways, maybe the first um, piece of autobiography, like, uh, you know, very important as Charles Taylor says in Sources of the Self, Sources of the Self, excuse me, for developing, um, you know, a sort of uh, particular stream of Western thought having to do with, you know, like um, inner selfhood. And uh, yeah, that has a kind of, you know, like theological sort of coloration because of that. And that also comes up, I think, in the Kant chapter, but inverted so that like we're sort of like closer to that reality than its own jugular vein or something. And like, you know, Kant's recharacterization, but the sort of intimate sort of meshing in, um, you know, and the sort of intimate presence that does suggest, you know, not something inert or you know completely chaotic but that does have a kind of directedness and intention towards human beings um characterizing you know like that fundamental reality that uh yeah he's he's really like the theology seems to me to um be a kind of cash out theology like really measured in yeah. terms of its um you know like what it implies for human beings there's nothing really ultimately abstract about it you know as much as we've talked about kant and you know like this palace of ideas there's a way in which um you know kind of like i think it's heidegger who says that he could only believe in a god who dances and uh you know robert similarly there has to be something sort of like poetic and affirming and enriching about you know like this notion rather than the thing that he um you know in many chapters like sort of paints as the villainous foil um in you know sort of like rigid mm -hmm. um like bolted down approaches to life and thought so, uh, at the end of a lot of these podcasts, we tend to do stuff Bill really liked, uh, which is just two or three random things from the book that I liked. Um, I, ha I have, I guess, two I want to do briefly since we're, we're doing this. One, uh, in chapter nine, I think it is, they're doing the, the dialogues, right? Uh, and it's written as mostly dialogue, you know, Charles, where did you come from? PETA, this is that, right? But... Uh, there's also stage directions, which will mostly be, you know, Charles sits down again, the storm is completely stopped. But there's a bit when they're, they're on this ferry uh, up north, uh, and something has gone wrong, but neither of them have noticed, which is actually a quote from the stage directions, right? Basically what they will learn later is they have been teleport, they've been held in time for a while because Roy is screwing around with them. Um, but they're ignoring it, and there's just... They're talking some more, and there's just a stage direction which just says, something is very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I really love that. <laughs> 
because uh, he's not telling you what I mean. He's told you a couple things, like the the fairy drops like a foot in the you know air for no reason and so on. But I actually I really loved that as just a way to look you square in the eyes and say that, and it really worked the first time I read it in particular to give me a real Agreed. sense of dread. I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> the second thing, and this is silly, but uh, at one point when Charles is talking to the professor who runs the institute. Uh, he says, I don't understand if you've got AI, why aren't you telling everyone and getting the Nobel Prize and getting parades? And she says, well, because AI is not an end in itself. It's only a means to an end. And of course, the Kant I studied was the ethics, which is the only part of philosophy I ever care about, uh, right. <laughs> which I'm exaggerating. Uh, and of course, one of the formulations of the categorical imperative, which is Kant's whole moral philosophy, is that you're not supposed to, you should always act uh, such that you treat other human beings as ends in themselves, right? And I actually, if I recall correctly, and Martin, you can correct me on this, because I have not read the metaphysics of morals in a very long time. But if I recall correctly, um, he's actually pretty clear to say you're treating the rationality in other beings. Like he had this weird desire to be clear that he wasn't just talking about human beings, right? Um, I don't know if he was thinking of angels or what. So it occurs to me that she says, well, we're not treating this rational being as an end in itself. We're not following Kantian ethics. And of course, uh, PETA's whole concern is that if they ever get a hold of him, they're going to dismantle him, right? Because they're not going to treat him as, right. a, as a being. And so there's a sense, I don't know if he's doing that on purpose, but there's a sense in which there's this little tag here on the Kantian ethics in addition mm. to Kantian epistemology that I at least enjoyed. Because again, that's the Kant, to the extent that I've studied any Kant, that's the Kant I studied. He's got a whole theory <laughs> of virtue. No one talks about it. Anyway, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> My friends and I talk about it. <laughs> but that's great. We're not everyone. <laughs> that's fair. Um, I, I actually for I, I don't always have stuff for this section, but I, I had a few things as well because again he just he, he crams so many things in here that even when it's not explicit, he makes you think of other interesting ideas, which is the most banal way to say it, but that, that's all I can give. But so you know, the first chapter when Roy wants to have this kind of outside Kantian categories experience and does kind of on accident, he doesn't realize I actually, I couldn't help but think that this was basically an ideal LSD experience, right? That like <laughs> one of the things that, you know, Roberts doesn't ever actually talk about, but he clearly is invoking is like, not only are these like religious experiences, but how do we get outside of human perception? I mean, this is the language of like Ram Dass or, you know, even Alice Huxley <laughs> to an extent, right? Like this is the language of, of basically, you know, drug-induced visions or just visions, period. And so I, I, I just, I love that as an aside because I think that, again, he kind of gives you enough breadcrumbs to get there. This isn't purely book-related, but I, I had to mention it that in the Germany section where he kind of basically posits, in my opinion, that the uptick in UFO sightings is a product of our expanding imagination. I love that theory. But it made me think, of course, of like the two other theories around UFOs and alien abductions in particular, one of which is my favorite and borders on personal belief when I've had like enough to drink, which is that they're fair. It's that they're fairies. They're just fairies. <laughs> that, you know, Robert Kirk and his book, The Secret Commonwealth and various folks in Scotland and England like describe these very accurate alien abductions only they talk about it being fairies, you know, way back in the way back machine. Um, and of course my, my other favorite actually is from Brian Phillips, another favorite writer of mine, um, an essayist. And he kind of talks about in a really great essay on Roswell that the reason the 20th century sees this huge uptick in UFOs 
um, he asks people, he asks these UFO enthusiasts and you know, abductees, like, well, why now? Why don't we see anything until after like 1940 or 1945 even? And they all say, oh, um, the A-bomb. We weren't important enough until the A-bomb. And I, I just, I don't know, I love these pet theories of like hmm. why we saw nothing until the modern age. And this one in particular because it, it feels just so reasonable. A random side note, you mentioned, Martin, that Albie in the Penelope's Mono chapter like might be Albert from earlier. Again, that might be true. But there is, <laughs> at one point, he's called, I think it's the same guy, it's called Bainbridge. He's the lover of Penelope's mother. Mm-hmm. And there actually is an historical Bainbridge who's from the 19th century, exactly fitting the timeline. And he was a cricket player <laughs> who also was an Irish officer in the Royal Navy. <laughs> and wow. it fits exactly. And I feel like it's definitely a reference point that Roberts is making because I think he's a cricket fan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got a few more. I'm sorry, I'm going to do more of these than I meant to. But I also liked in the Thomas section, which is the late 17th century section, how the parson ends up being... Uh, basically the black mass leader because there's a lot of course historical readings around the fact that like basically everyone who's a witch back in the times we think of there being witches they were also some variety of christian often catholic you know like they in some ways there was this like slide from orthodoxy to witchcraft that for me what it reminded me of in this book particular um, as the parson is justifying all of his witchcraft ideas to Thomas, he keeps like citing scripture and talking about Lucifer as being heralded as like the power of the world and, you know, so forth, so on, and overreading even Christ's own miracles. And it, it reminded me of like this theory that conspiracy theorists on QAnon, they're not like, a lot of times they're, they're kind of talked about as if they're illiterate, they don't know how to read or think, but like a few years ago, there's an article, which you guys might remember, it was big on Twitter, but, um, that talks about actually that QAnon and most conspiracy theorists, they're overliterate. They're overreading history yeah. and power and so forth. And that really, I thought like that actually jived with like an overliterate reading, an overreading of Christianity kind of led to witchcraft, which I thought was not only like delightfully, you know, brilliant of Roberts, but weirdly relevant to our moments. Um, yeah. And it's classic, like, you know, young Goodman Brown stuff, like, Yes, it's the sort of that moral inversion. And also that's, I think, related to, yeah, the way that he thematically makes use of the idea of the thing itself. I totally. So, uh, yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. Young Goodman Brown's great reference. But I I also like um, this was more just like a hit Joel and his feelings comments. (laughs) (laughs) For some reason, the mutual empathy equals complex harmonic from the, the furthest in the future chapter. I really resonated with that because I feel like in some ways he summed up the totality of like the family drama in my life, which is that like my family is a bunch of intuitive people overshare moment who all kind of can anticipate what will and won't hurt. And there's an incredible amount of drama that comes from that. And I thought it was like a, not only was like a fun, cute little, you know, aside, but it felt genuinely like another important insight into the ways in which, you know, these I don't know, these irrepressible human tendencies can also go awry. Um, the last thing I'll say is this guy, Adam Roberts, he is too good on so many fronts, and one of which was that he, I assume accurately as far as like the theoretical science goes, but he has literally like a sentence that accurately, in theory, describes the terraforming of Venus, and then he moves <laughs> on. 
And he, <laughs> he, he never comes back. He was like, yeah, giant sunshade. And you could create such a, you know, difference in temperature that actually like the moisture would drop into oceans and it'd be livable anyway. And it's like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> isn't there like a Kim Stanley Robinson tri- trilogy about this? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so yeah, I love that. And I, I guess actually the last thing I'll say is in the time travel section, that people coming from the future to the past lose a certain material quantum level presence and they're referred to as ghosts and they're immediately made into like second class citizens, which I thought was great because they're essentially immigrants, right? It's, a, it's another way that he fits commentary on our current moment into this really like obscure side narrative that I thought was both accurate and sort of, you know, compelling on an emotional level. Yeah. But Okay, that's all my stuff. Sorry, I kind of I kind of pulled the the old the old bill trim and just listed things I loved. That's I want to say three of those were the last thing you were gonna say too. I'm just <laughs> yeah. No, I kept well, I kept like saying you know I, I kept wanting to be done for the sake of like you know Martin in Toronto, but I couldn't stop. Hey, it's all good. In fact, I have one thing that I would contribute to this section Please. as well, if you would humor me. This is a really subtle thing that I only noticed on this second read through. I think because I don't have a memory of this for my first. But chapter six, the most difficult chapter, you know, it's about child rape. It's absolutely brutal. Um, His account that he's giving, 19 pages in, you start seeing square brackets. So, like, at this late stage, you know, relatively late stage in this long chapter, um, Robert sort of, like, very subtly introduces the idea that this is an edited manuscript, edited and recovered. (laughs) And so there's a sort of, like, you know, um, another mind at work not just thomas's in presenting this information um with these like you know it's basically like little corrections adding words or like clarifying like you know there's one like suggesting a word that the editor thinks was intended with a misspelled other word um and then replacing you know like words that have been dropped it's really in like a section um where he has like a terrible nightmare where he actually sees you know that he says a man with a great bald head with a dent in it and a black throne twinkling as if it were molten black oil and solid abomate. And then it says in, you know, in square brackets, Ebonite at once wondrous. And upon the throne, the winds did bring me to a light. And when I touched the surface, it was hot as coals, but did not burn my skin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he's having this vision, you know, obviously induced by the thing itself. And he's about to be invested with terrifying power that will enable him to kill um, at a distance, action at a distance, a classic philosophical, problem (laughs) um right but it's you know in this section that you know we're introduced to the idea that there is an editor who's also you know sort of working with his own intelligence or with her own intelligence in the context of this text but who's otherwise unacknowledged except for the little hints that there have been you know like changes made to that manuscript and again that's just like the you know like his playing the long game with his art and the fact that his you know um that he would add this extra level of interpretation to, you know, an already very difficult to accomplish and to pull off um, sort of text, like uh, just, you know, my admiration for him grows. Um, my admiration for Roberts as my admiration grows for Kant when I reread him. Just uh, full of admiration tonight for these great uh, for these great writers. <laughs> well, I, I actually I noticed that on this read through as well because he he um, Thomas will sometimes say made and then it'll finish maidenhead in brackets and I I didn't make the connection until you were saying it but yeah Roberts basically makes time for the most subtle like Nabokov Nabokov illusion right that it's like a Penin illusion is someone commenting on the 
on the text, which you're right is is ridiculous. Who has time for this? How does he have time for all this? I mean, what is is he not? Does he have the Kantian categories? Like, has he surpassed them? Because <laughs> I don't know how he has time to blog and write like a novel or two a year and do scholarship and read every book, presumably in his college came you know his college library. Oh. Who, and his like, criticism. Where does he get this from? Like, he, yeah. gosh, like I, I'm working on slowly on a big project with involving uh, Philip K. Dick and came across an essay of his from like 10 years ago on Dick's late writings, um, you know, which are, kind of have the more visionary cast. And it's still the best thing that I've read on, you know, like that era in Dick's life. Um, like, oh, it's incredible. No one should have all the gifts. No one should have all. That's the what I'm gifts. saying. No, yeah, he's got to give a few up. <laughs> he has all Absolutely the literary gifts. We were, in our, uh, we did a podcast on Charles Taylor's A Secular Age, which you know, of course, talk about you know mind-blowingly doing too many things at once. But Bill and I posited that it would be fascinating to like hear from not only someone who who kind of knew the texts and the historical context of what he was talking about better than we did, but also from an atheist who did, because of course we had a bias in favor of Charles Taylor's narrative to a certain extent. And then I, I find that um, I'm not sure he's continued it for a while, but Adam Roberts is writing a separate blog going through Charles Taylor and questioning him on some stuff, including like he, he one, of them, one of them I read, he questions um, him on, you know, the fall of the Roman Empire. He goes right after him and says, I'm not sure this is quite correct. And it was like, how, like who invented you? <laughs> like it's impossible that you're hitting this many categories in one lifetime. And he seems to be like, you know, a, a, an interested father based on his tweets, at least too. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's the best. <laughs> All right, I think we're probably winding down here unless either of y'all have anything in particular you want to add. Um, so is there anything else we want to bring up here? I'm all good. My tank is empty. Yeah, fair enough. Well, hey, this was a blast. I hope you guys had a lot of fun. And uh, Martin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, this was this was a great deal of fun. Yeah, I had a blast. Thank you guys so much. No, thank you, man. It was, it was really great. So uh, for listeners to the podcast, our next podcast... Uh, well, we might do another surprise one, but if we don't do that, uh, the next one will be in September. We are reading through Studs Terkel's book, Working, and uh, we don't have a date because we never do, but that's what Joel and I are doing. So uh, thanks for listening. Um, this, is a, this is a heck of a book to read. I, I, I don't think you really need to know Kant going in. Um, I, I, it's probably sure. worth it to know a little bit of Kant, but I don't think you need to know Kant going in. Um, and it's really not very long, so it's a good time. Thanks for listening, and again, one more time, thanks so much for being here, Martin, and uh, I will see you guys around. So bye. Talk later, Bill. Thanks, guys. Thanks, as always, to Lily and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to our podcast. 
The Big Read Cast can be found uh, pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found. So if you want to go onto one of those services and leave us a review telling us how much you like the podcast, that'd be great. If you want to go onto one of those services and tell us how much you don't like the podcast, I'd politely ask you to keep that to yourself. As always, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.